Well, hello everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number one ninety six. So glad you could join me. An exciting episode today. We have um, our featured guest, one of the big friends of the show, Francesca Bell, is here with her new book, What Small Sound. We also have another uh, one of our favorite poets, Wendy Weiblock, will be here in just a moment to talk about her poet's respond poem. And then last week was the Wrightwood Arts and Mind Festival, which includes the Wrightwood Poetry Slam, and uh, at the uh, I guess the hour and 15 mark or so after Francesca, we're going to have an appearance by the winner, Propaganda Poet, who is uh, fascinating to me from the moment I saw that name on the, uh, the little bin to pull up um, of, of entrance and uh, ended up winning. So now we can learn a little bit more about who Propaganda Poet is, which should be pretty interesting. Um, but before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do all this because we love poetry, and I know you do too. That's why you're here. So please do ring the bell, um, click the like button, um, leave reviews on iTunes or Spotify or Amazon Music. Anything you can do to, to give some feedback for the algorithms really helps poetry spread around and more people listen to this wonderful content that we have every week at the Rattlecast. So uh, please do click something right now. There's only three likes right now on Facebook. There needs to be more. I mean, on YouTube. On Facebook, we got more than that. But um, please do click something because it actually helps. And people see it and show up and you never know who, who might appear. Um, now, as I said, we're going to start off like we always do with our news poem for the week. And Wendy Vidalock is here, one of our favorite poets, one of the most musical poets around. Um, here she is, Wendy. Hey, Wendy, how you doing? Hey, Tim. Good to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you. It's been a bit. Uh, but you were the guest of Rattlecast around issue, around episode 70, I think, if anybody wants to go back. I'm not sure what number it is, but but scroll down a ways, and uh, Wendy will be there. But, but here we have a Poets Respond poem. Um, and can you explain a little bit about, about what caught your eye about the story and why you decided to write about it? Well, I've been... Um... I've been trying not to read the news so much and, uh, and, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of not good, <laughs> uh, but it's also not good to be completely oblivious to what's going on in the world. And so I'm always trying to strike a balance. So I've been reading news sources that boast, um, you know, publishing um, and reporting good news. And so I found this wonderful article about how, um, you know, they're turning off the lights at the big arch in St. Uh, Louis. They do the, um, they just during May. And I think another, there's another month, um, that they just turn the lights off so that the birds don't get, you know, the birds get really messed up when we've got all the lights on at night. Um, and they just can't, they don't know how to use their instinct. The lights uh, freak them out. And a whole lot of birds die during migration because of all our light pollution, um, so I started to think about that, and I'd been thinking about memento mori's, which is that little, that little sign in those old uh, paintings that you know the painter would have this big, beautiful sort of still life of all this you know overflowingly abundant food, and in the corner there'll be this little skull or something just to remind us that mm -hmm. uh, uh, to remember that moment. Uh, and so, yeah, that's where the, the poem kind of came from, those two those two things. Of course, poets are uh, death-obsessed anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we sure. move, move into that direction pretty quickly here. Yeah. Well, why don't you read it, then we'll talk a little bit more about, uh, about uh, how, how you wrote it. But, but let's hear it. Uh, lights turn off. Uh, lights turn off in May at the Gateway Arch to assist migratory birds. It makes sense in every sense of the word to turn the lights off for the songbird that she may find her way. True too for the waterfowl, the barn owl, 
the cactus wren. Even the mouse prefers a darkened house in which to nibble her grains. It's even true the fiddler's tune will only begin to dance when under a subtle crescent moon. If not for the dark, no spark, says the sparrow and the meadowlark. Beware the ones who fear the dark, who refuse to look a shadow in the eye, who have no interest in the sky unless it's rendered itself so blue it won't reveal the distance between it and you. It isn't the moral, but the heart of the story, the raven's claw, the falcon's beak, the eagle's scree, the rotting little memento mori. There is no wing, no blissful flight, no finding your way, no resting gently in the nest and nuzzling your little egg without the calling of the rest, the grief song, the suddenly wan, the fallen star, the weight of loss, the lights that flicker and turn off. And that was Wendy Vidalak once again reading uh, Lights Turn Off in May at the Gateway Arch to Assist Migratory Birds. The title from a Good News Network article, and I just realized I forgot to include the link to that. So sorry, everybody. There should be a link to the Good News Network story, which I will add after the show. But but that's one of the things, um, you know, I've just, over the years, Poetry Respondent's been going on for nine years now. And over the years, the you know, at first it felt like a release for all the anxiety and tension that the news creates. But more and more, it feels um, I, I worry about it adding to the anxiety because it's it really, you know, the everything that we have, every industry has become like a way to make people addicted. Like that's the the capitalist business model is to addict people to your product, and the news addicts you to negativity because we have that negativity bias, and, and we get that, you know, all those emotions are, that draw us to the TV or when something negative happens, and so it's sort of a race toward who can be the most negative at all times. Um, I mentioned we had the literary festival or the Arts and Wine Festival. And ABC7 here did like a little spot for us. And as I was trying to find it so I could retweet, you know, they did it on the air, but then they um, were going to post on social media too. So I was scrolling through all the lists of the articles and it was shooting, 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 shooting. Toddler almost kidnapped. Somebody, you know, raped. It was just all, everything was terrible. And I was just waiting for us to get to, oh, and come up to the festival to have some wine and enjoy some poetry and art. You know, and it took so long waiting through that just mess to get to that article. Um, so, so, so what do we do in the face of that? You know, how do we make poetry a positive light? You know, because it is so important to release that anxiety, but we also want it to be like a shining light and, and to our humanity and to all the good things that humans do. So, so how do you go about approaching news? I mean, you have the dark turn there at the end, um, which is always something that poets tend to do too. So, so how, do you, how do you navigate that as a poet? Well, I think it all has to come together and, you know, you can't have one without the other. But I think, too, where we put our attention is how we live. I mean, that, you know, I think social media is the only, you know, industry whereby, you know, the customers are called users. <laughs> I mean, you talk about addiction, you know, mm -hmm. they're not even pretending. They're not even pretending. Um, and, and they also, when Facebook discovered that we spend more time on Facebook if we're angry, and then they changed it so that we weren't getting all the frustrating, angry stuff. And then they discovered that 
people actually spend more time if they're enjoying themselves. Mm. So, you know, it's sort of like what, you know, it's sort of like the, whichever, whichever wolf you feed that's inside of you is the one that you're going to spend all your time, you know, thinking about, but you know, you do get to a certain age where you're just sort of grateful to be alive and you don't expect the world to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we get there, then it's sort of like, okay, you do what you can in your own life. Um, to make everything um, a little bit better for the people around you and for yourself. And you just kind of keep that as your sort of guiding star. That really helps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, if everybody did that and focused on that, we'd all be better off, you know, because you can help the people who are there to help. Um, Yeah. I I want, before you go, can you talk a little bit about your your writing your writing process. Cause I imagine, I mean, if we look at the, it, it's so driven by sound, your ear for poetry is sort of legendary. And, and I imagine it comes through like just riffing on the sound. So you go, it makes sense in every sense of the word to turn off the lights for the songbird. Do you just sort of feel like the music of that? And then are you just like riffing off that like a jazz player? Cause that's how I imagine it. That's how I want to pretend that you write. Yes. That's exactly what it's like, Tim. And it always starts with um, some kind of line that just feels like it's like a song that you can't get out of your head Mm -hmm. Uh, and so and that's exactly where it began it doesn't always begin with that first line sometimes it's something that ends up somewhere else in the poem but if I get something that starts ringing you know and in this case it was it makes sense in every sense of the word and then once I got that bird rhyme in there then by then you just kind of know the poem is going to write itself because Mm -hmm. the sound is where it all comes from for me and so I just kind of have to get out of the way and look (laughs) Let the sound happen. And then, and then the flip side of that question is, how do you not let the sound take over to where? Because because the, the real beauty of your your verse is the irregularity of it, because you sort of never know where to expect. There's always a sense of the the verse rhythm. You know, it feels very iambic, but but there's always surprise going on and how you turn around and where the rhymes actually come up and where the, the meter turns. Yeah, if I can surprise myself, then it's good. You know, if I if I start to feel that it's getting predictable, I just sort of get up and move around a little bit (laughs) and, you know, it's really like changing the energy. Hmm. And then once I do that, then maybe another line comes or another word. And a lot of times it's about parts of speech too. Like we get on this kick where all of a sudden we're all about the nouns are rhyming or the verbs are all rhyming and you, you just have to kind of switch that around. And, and what happens is that when I do start to get carried away and it does happen, um, I can see it as soon as I start to read the poem aloud to myself. And it's like, oh, now you're just being clever. Mm-hmm. And it starts to feel more like it's the head rather than the body and the rhythm, you know, kind of taking over. Yeah. Well, very cool to hear. And, and just always love your poems. Uh, an antidote to a lot of the uh, the other, you know, you know, poems reading the negativity of the news. It was great to see. So thanks so much for sharing that, Wendy. Always thanks so much. Yeah. Yeah. Always good to see you. Right, take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, it was Wendy Vidalock, uh, Sunday's poet, with Lights Turn Off in May at the Gateway Arch to assist migratory birds. And I will add that uh, headline. The Good News Network is great. I mean, um, it's one of the things I follow on social media just to cleanse your palate, kind of. It's like the the um, like the like ginger of the meal <laughs> of social media or something, at least. It pops up, and I'm a little happy. But um, anyway, check that out, and uh, always great to have Wendy on. Now, we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, uh, Francesca Bell, of course. So sit tight, and I will be right back. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Like I said, today's guest is Francesca Bell, a longtime poet in Rattle. The One of the very first issues I read um, 
as a copy editor before I even had a job at Rattle was uh, issue 22, which had Francesca's poem. I think it was narrow openings in that issue. Uh, Francesca was raised in Washington and Idaho and settled as an adult in California. She did not complete middle school, high school, or college and holds no degrees, which is it was beautifully rare among poets. She has worked as a massage therapist, a cleaning lady, a daycare worker, a nanny, a barista, and a server in a, the kitchen of her retirement home. Belle's writing appears in many magazines, including Elle, the LA Review, New Ohio Review, and of course Rattle. Her translations appear in Mid-American Review and all over the place as well, as including Rattle too. Her first book, Bright Stain, from Red Hen Press, was a finalist for the Washington State Book Award and the Julie Souk Award. Um, in 2023, Red Hen Push Red Hen has just published uh, What Small Sound, her second book of poetry, which is beautiful. Look at this cover. Um, wonderful book. Um, and um, Whoever Drowned Here is coming out, too, a collection of poems by Max Cessner, which we'll probably have on a future episode, um, maybe a short segment to do some of our translations of Max. Um, she's a translation editor of the Los Angeles Review and the Marin County Poet Laureate. Um, here she is, Francesca Bell. Hey, Francesca. Hey, Tim. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's great to have you. I was looking at the last episode. It was episode 15, if anybody wants to go back and see that. And there was a fire, like, all over. Your, you remember when yes. you had the <laughs> your house was on the generator and then the power came back on in the middle of the episode? And um, so I'm glad uh, this time things seem a little more peaceful in, uh, as far as the fires go anyway, right? Yeah, it's only May. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, why don't you start out with a poem from the new book? Okay, well, this has to do with um, that. It, it was probably, well, this has to do with a different fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many. <laughs> yeah, there's so many. Uh, learning to love the world that is. It's good to walk this first smokeless morning in weeks. Though fires burn not so far away, winds are favorable at the moment to me. I hum as I pass the 23 RVs of the unhoused lined up neatly along the road a smattering of tents, the tarped and trailered boat someone lives in, as if it were a camp and not an encampment. I'm thinking of rain, which is not forecast, and hate, which definitely is, and a restaurant I loved that incinerated last week. The flight of steps to the entrance survived, and at the top hangs the missing space where we celebrated our 20th anniversary in style. Joggers pass me, and I notice how, though we cover our faces, we cannot paper over the losses of this strange year. Miserly world, I think, just as flock after flock of geese lift their generous bodies from the stinking slough and fly low over the trees I walk among. They are like a book God writes across this autumn sky, its pages fluttering, the very God who inscribes himself on the hill's dry faces, who etches suffering onto a world that scorches, its forests immolating and magnificent. So like the chef at Meadowood, who shattered dishes and people just before he plated beauty. I'm like a person who resists at first the temptation of a kiss, but then leans fully in, my heart rising on the voices of the geese, their cry a hinge that sings as it does the necessary work of opening. Yeah, that was Learning to Love the World That Is, um, one of the early poems from What Small Sound, the beautiful new book from Francesca Bell. Um, so, Francesca, your first book 
was about, I think we said, we, we characterized it as um, about all the things that we don't talk about, <laughs> yeah. or maybe are afraid to talk about. Um, how, how would you characterize this book? Would, would it be something similar, or what's different about it than the, from the first? Well, I think this book uh, has less violence in it. Um, the first book had quite a bit of violence in it. And, um, and this book, I guess I would characterize this book, the themes of it as um, there's quite a bit about hearing loss and mental illness. Uh, my family's had a, a large struggle with mental illness and um, about motherhood, both being a mother and having a mother. And, um, and then a lot about being a woman and um, sort of the, the peril of being a woman out in the world and um, and then the peril of trying to raise children, you know, in the world that feels pretty scary a lot of the time. Yeah. One of the things, um, you know, we were talking just now about Wendy, about the negativity of the news and how poetry goes to those darker places very often. But I think it's because, you know, poetry and just literature itself is a guide to the suffering of life. And, and, and yeah. life is suffering, ultimately. I mean, we all, you know, everybody we love will die, you know, and... Um, you know, there, there'll be heartache and there'll be challenging times no matter who you are. There's no way to guard against that. So we have to be prepared and strong and learn from each other's stories to, to make our way through life because life is challenging. We have the knowledge of our own suffering and we're the, you know, the only creatures that can do that. And so we have poetry as, a, as an antidote to that. Is, that. is that what you get out of poetry? Um, you know, you're two books into a career and, and you've been writing poetry for, I don't know how long, um, is it the, the 20, 20 years or so since I've known you or, or even before that? Um, it, what, what do you get over the span of time um, from writing poetry? Um, so I started writing poetry when I was, you know, younger, you know, like I, I, I became somewhat serious about it when I was a teenager, but it was just sort of a long, very slow journey toward publication. And I think I get from it now what I used to get from it, which is also what I get from reading poetry, which is um, a way to feel less alone in the world and to experience a sense of intimacy with other people. Um, um, even when I'm writing the poetry, you know, knowing that um, other people will read this and be moved by it, and maybe it will touch something in them or talk to them about something they've had a hard time with or that they don't feel able to talk about. Um, yeah, so I think I think intimacy is uh, is what what I'm after, both when I read poetry and when I write poetry. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. About the um, who is it? Was it uh, Merwin who said like, "What would you do on the last day of the world?" And he'd write a poem, or did he say plant a tree? I can't remember which. But I don't remember either. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 there is something that that I think you know I've only sort of started to think about recently which is that you need to share poems in order for them to be effective in some way or to, to work. Like, like we talk about the, the nature of poetry as psychologically healing, you know, the James Pennebaker's work and, and the, the other psychological work as far as, as that goes and, and how important it is to come to an understanding about your own inner thoughts and feelings. Um, but, but there is some aspect in which we have to share it for it to work too, um, you know, there's a way that you see yourself reflected through other people's eyes, and there's a way that everything is communal and that nothing makes sense without someone to have the poem written for um, or to share with, you know. And so I think, you know, that, that question, would you write a poem if you were the last person on earth? Would you still do it? And, and for me, I think the answer is no, even as much as I like poetry and think it's valuable. But could you, would you do that? Do you get something out of it even beyond the sharing? Mm. 
I, I probably wouldn't write a poem on the last day of the earth. Um, and for me, um, there is part of the gesture is the sharing. Mm -hmm. And um, and I mean, I think there are different types of writing. When I write in my journal, I'm not wanting to share. And that can help me to understand what I'm ha what I'm going through. It can help me get in touch with feelings, you know, maybe I'm avoiding. But when I'm writing a poem, definitely the sharing of it is um, that's part of the gesture for mm -hmm. me. Yeah. So um, I I would probably make really delicious food and eat um, on the last day. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, wouldn't plant a tree and probably wouldn't write a poem. I might read a poem. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but but for me, the part of the gesture is the sharing of it. Yeah, yeah. That's probably why I seek publication, you know, because it's certainly possible to write a lot of poetry and never go through the agonies of seeking publication. Yeah, well, let's talk about that publication in a minute, but let's hear another poem first. Let's hear Late Blooming, uh, which is the next one on your list. Okay, so I like to tell people that, um, you know, I've led a very odd life. Um, and in the course of my life, um, I've been both um, precocious as a young person, and then somehow I'm a late bloomer in the literary world. And so um, I, I've gotten to, to experience, you know, both, both circumstances. Late blooming, mid-January, and still the last amaryllis refuses. Planted in October, it just now raises a green bud tip to the bright window. Inside the plain package waits a blaring red, the flower furled, held like breath in the trumpeter's body. And that is Late Blooming, again from uh, What Small Sound, Francesca Bell's newest book, or second, from Red Hen Press. Um, yeah, so, so I think um, there is such a challenge in publishing, and there's such an old model that doesn't really make a lot of sense in a lot of ways, which is something I'm struggling with too. I don't know what to do with my own poems either. Like I've, I've started writing um, for the last three years on the Rattlecast, a poem a week. So now I have like 150 poems, but I, <laughs> yeah, and they're, you know, they're all pretty good. Cause I know how, what I'm doing, you know? And so, but, I, but the thought of like submitting, I, I, I submitted a couple like in January, um, and then I never did it again. I, I thought, oh, I'm going to start doing it again. But just the, there's something about the grind of that that is so just disappointing, you know? And, and it just feels so removed from the actual act of sharing poems and the act of writing poems. There's that, that aspect of just going through this, this sort of maze of journals and places you can publish things. Um, how does that, how do you deal with that and still maintain sort of a positive outlook on the, on the writing and the creation of books or, or to you? <laughs> Well, you know, I actually enjoy submitting to journals. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't written much the last few years, so I've submitted almost nothing for a few years. The the pandemic um, really, you know, I've had a lot of health problems and it really knocked me off of my, um, my writing habits. Um, but that said, I really enjoy submitting. Um, even I, I, you get rejected a lot. And the way that I've gotten around that is... Um, when I'm when I'm writing a lot and when I'm submitting a lot, then I will I'll try to write one poem a week and then um, and then send work out to two places every week. And um, so back when I was really um, really active, I was I had work out maybe at like 25 journals at a time, and I found that that is what really helped me. Um, if you have work out at one or two journals or you're not creating new work, it's it gets pretty demoralizing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but if 
if you've got work out at 25 journals and you get one rejection, I mean, there's still 24 places. And if you're, if you are submitting, you know, one or two times every week, then you're just, you're keeping the work out there. And, um, and I find if I'm producing new work, I feel less demoralized. Um, it was much harder to get a book accepted. That was, um, that was a real slog. That was, I spent five years sending my book out and it was a finalist for some really great contests and, and, and nobody took it. And, um, and it was expensive. I probably sent it to, I don't know, at least a hundred places. And, um, yeah, that was hard or I not, not probably a hundred different places. I sent it out about a hundred times, you know, some places, like if I was a finalist, I would try again the next year. Um, that was far harder. You know, it's much harder to get a book accepted than to get your individual poems accepted. Um, the other thing that I do um, is when I'm submitting to magazines, I always submit to places where I have a really good chance of getting in. Um, and because I'm always I'm always hedging my bets and padding, padding my cell um, so that um, against, you know, disappointment. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I know some people will say, well, I only send, you know, to the best places. But I, I, for me, that's a bad strategy because, I mean, your odds at the best places are almost zero. Um, and so I try to I try to um, reach out to, you know, journals I know are likely to be friendly to my work, um, you know, journals for whom I might even be a little bit of a catch. And, you um, and I try to, I try to send to those places, and then I have, you know, a tier above that, and then I have the pie in the sky places. Um, so for me, over the years, it's always been a game of, you know, how can I keep myself from becoming too upset? Mm-hmm. And, and like I didn't ever, I've almost never entered contests. I'm trying to to change that, but the reason for that is because the odds of winning a contest are even smaller than the odds of getting into a journal. Uh, I mean, like when I was at River Sticks, my first job was to screen 1,500 poems and one poem was going to win. Mm-hmm. Those are not good odds. No, um, they're, they're definitely not. And and so so you enjoy that process still then. I, so it's not discouraging to, uh, you know, to keep. I do remember like in the olden days when it was by mail and there was like a reason to be excited when like the post guy came. <laughs> you know? And that was a I kind of missed that aspect of it. But but just being over email in my inbox is already a mess. So it's like. There, there's no joy in, in the um, the online submissions, I guess, maybe is part of it, too, for me. Um, so, so, so was there any, um, you know, between the first book and the second, was there any kind of, um, you know, difficulty in, in getting a start again? Like, well, you had all this, you know, years of poems built up and the momentum of writing and sending that mm-hmm. manuscript out. Was there a transition phase where you're like, well, that's done, you know, almost like you have a, you know, have a child or something out in the world and, and you're sort of tired from all that and, and you don't want to, you know, get back to it again. Um, is there anything like that? Or, or do you, did you, did you feel comfortable to, to hop right into the second book? You know, for me, um, I started putting the second book together when I was out on book tour with the first book. So I already had not all the poems written, but most of the poems that are in this book were already written at that point. And um, I went to um, Charleston, West Virginia and read with Ace Bogus. And I had an, I had a, had somewhere else to be maybe two days after that. So I had a bed and breakfast there and I spread all the poems out, you know, in that room. Um, and so I was already working on trying to figure out how to put the book together then. And, um, and I did write some, you know, newer work that did end up in the book, but I wasn't starting from 
nothing. Um, you know, at that point I, I had, I, I had, I don't know, more than a hundred poems that I actually liked at the time I was in, in West Virginia. And, um, and that, so I had to narrow them down. And, and then, I mean, I came back from my book tour. Um, I kind of finished up like in December and then the pandemic started. And so, um, yeah, so I've had a much harder time getting going post-pandemic. I know we're not really post-pandemic, but, you know, what we call post-pandemic. Yeah. yeah, well, let's hear another poem. Um, next up, what do we have? Um, after the hearing test. Okay. Toward the end, yeah. Yeah, so I started losing my hearing when I was 24, and um, and the... And, and we're continuing with that pattern. <laughs> so this is a poem about, about that experience. After the hearing test, it's two days before I cry. Grief sneaks up on me the way sound does now. My ability to mourn as sluggish as my inner ears. Cilia do not rejuvenate. We have that in common. I won't mind losing the clamor of cocktail parties, high grind of the dentist's drill, triggering wretch of other people's vomit. But I'd like to keep Telemann's trumpet concerto in D, the tiny chuff my python makes up close to my ear, the calls of two Canada geese as they circled the slough this morning, seeming lost, their cries trailing them like a woman's heavy train and the indecipherable murmur of my beloved's voice as she held my hand while the bear ate my baked beans just outside our tent. Though I could not make out her assurances, may they burble over me forever. Loss accrues, the geese can tell you. It compounds like interest. Oh world, leave me slowly. Let me dally over each diminishing return. Yeah, and that was um, after the hearing test. Um, and sort of the, one of the central themes in What Small Sound, and where the title is derived from, too, that uh, What Small Sound being a poem from Rattle. Um, and it, what, an interesting thing about this book is, is though those poems about the hearing loss are, are really moving. And, and I think it seems like somebody would, would maybe be driven to make that a central theme around a really thematic book. But what's interesting about this book is it moves around through time and topic in a way that, that almost feels... You know, you're always surprised by what poem comes next, and it and it and it sort of has a sort of a random walk kind of quality to it as you move through this topic and then the mental health topics, and um, in a way that that makes the the experience sort of more lively than it would be if it were like these are the poems about hearing loss, these are the poems about about family illness and what we're dealing with in that and and things like that. So so how did you decide to organize the book like that, which is not a way that that books tend to be these days, I'd say. Um, well, first of all, I seem incapable of writing um, a themed collection. Um, I I started out when I started writing my uh, my poems about molesting priests, thinking I was going to make a whole book of it, and I just you know I got about five poems in, and that was that was the extent of of it. Um, so I I'm, I don't think I'll ever write a book that is just a uh, like th that is all about one theme, and um, and so I guess. Um, I follow the advice of April Osman. Uh, she's a poet and also an editor, and she was the executive director of Alice James Books. And she has a wonderful essay about how to organize um, a book of poetry that it was in uh, Poets and Writers several years ago. 
and um, and she helped me put together my first book. And and so I kind of follow a pattern that she does where each poem has a little something to do with the poem before it. That could be the color blue, it, um, it could be a word in common, it could be a theme, um, but there's like a little thread hmm. um, that connects them. And um, and so with this book, I what happened for me is that I, I started with, I, I figured out I kind of knew what what the general themes were that were the strongest in the book. And then I found one poem that I thought touched on several of those themes. And and so that was the the poem I started the book with. And once I had the first poem, then it was much easier um, to sort of, you know, to to look for which um, which poem had a little something in common. You know, it's like the first poem is called Jubilations, and it takes place partly at um, at the restaurant Meadowood, which the second poem talks about when Meadowood burned down um, a few years ago. Um, so that's the thing that they have in common. Um, and so I, I think uh, I like that way of arranging. I really struggled to, to know how to arrange a book. You know, I don't have an MFA, so I didn't, you know, have I didn't have anybody studying or I didn't study that. No one was teaching me that. Yeah, well, well, uh, they don't really teach you anything in MFA, so don't worry about it. I <laughs> I, well, I don't believe that, but... Um. <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, I do love... I mean, I love the way that it feels... It, it's sort of like, as you're moving through the book, it feels like a poem, just, just poems, you know? And then the themes sort of slowly emerge, and you start to see more poems about this topic and this topic and this topic. There's sort of three that kind of swirl through the book. And... Um, and and you realize that they're all kind of coming together in, with a common I don't know perspective or something, which is really interesting to see emerge in an or, a way that feels organic rather than being thematic. Um, mm. And so so I really like that. And, and it too, like I hadn't noticed a thread, but they do feel like they're talking to each other in a way. Like it's almost like because nothing happens in life that cleanly as like a theme. You know, everything is always swirling around all at once and. And so, it, you know, but you're still talking to each other and, and the themes are interacting with each other, too. So I think it's a great way to um, to uh, put together a book. I think it works really well. Um, a lot of people love the last line of that poem. Um, let me let me dally over each diminishing return. And and you do a great job with last lines. I always notice that. Um, so so let's talk about, you know, the, the nitty gritty of poetry, but how do you, what's your writing process like and how do you find a good last line? Because really the, you have a lot of good last lines in, throughout the book. Well, thank you. I'm not supposed to admit this. And, um, and, but, and people always say you should never be writing toward the end of a poem. You should be surprised by it. But I often have the last line first. Mm -hmm. Um, and that poem I did not, that poem, I, I really struggled to come up with the ending. And up until, almost until the book went to press, I don't remember now what it was, but it had a different ending that um, that I just was never satisfied with. Um, but I, I guess I often, I, I tend to think about poems a lot in my head before I write them. And so I, I often have an idea of how I'm going to end, or I, I think that I, you know, I had a little bit of a background in gymnastics and my sister had, she was a really wonderful competitive gymnast. And, um, and, you know, when, when you do gymnastics, even if you have flubbed everything, you know, you always do, you know, <laughs> you have the finish. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, I think the finish is, is, very, it's very important in a poem. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I don't know, how do we, how do we know where are these things come from? <laughs> but it is the truth that I pretty often um, have the finish um, 
or very early, maybe even from the beginning for a lot of the poems. Yeah, well, people um, talk about, you know, needing surprise in a poem, but the surprise can be the journey, too. Like, I think of some ways to write, which I've seen, I've done a few times, usually I don't, but... But if I do it that way, it feels like you're you're like hacking your way through the forest, you know, and there's like paths you don't know exactly, but you know you're getting to the top of the mountain. Like you see like the the tower at the top and you know that's where you're going, even though you don't know the journey up the side of the mountain to get there. And, th- and then the surprise is, is the meanders and, and the path that you take, all the switchbacks and things to get to the end. Um, so I think maybe that's how it works. Is that how it works for you, um, you know, knowing the ending first? You know, um, I don't know. It depends. I think that some people, um, like I, I really do think a poem through sometimes for a long time and sometimes pretty completely before I start to write. And so I think for me, um, the surprises might happen in my head before I'm writing something down. Um, as I've gotten older, I, my memory isn't as good. So some of my poems now come more from free writing and the free writing can be, I can be surprised in the free writing. Like I'll be going along and if I'm, if I can really relax into the free writing, I might end up um, writing about something I had no idea I was even thinking about. So I, th- I think it probably depends on a person's, um, on kind of their methods. And I think to like so many, for so long, I, I have three kids and, and while raising kids, I often didn't have much time that was mine or that or that was quiet time. So I might be turning over an idea or a poem in my head for a long time before I ever had a chance to write it down. Mm-hmm. And, um, luckily the kids are, are grown now that my memory is, is not as, as sharp. <laughs> it's nice that it works out that way. Um, <laughs> so, so what goes into a good ending? Like, what do you think makes the landing stick like that? Uh, is there some mm-hmm. characteristic that it has that, that you can, you've noticed? I don't know what was, I don't remember who it was who said that about, um, it was about, it was one of the big congressional arguments about pornography and that you just know it when you see it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that, um, I really don't, I don't know how to say what makes the, what makes the best ending or what what makes an ending good. Um, but you feel it. Um, I mean, you really feel whether the gymnast has landed the ending or not, you know, at the end of a poem, but I don't know. I don't know. Do you know what makes the ending good? I don't know. I would say the same thing. There's a way that it like completes the music, you know, there's a way that it, it, you know, like if you like, I don't know anything about music, actually. Like, like literally, I don't know. I'm terrible. There's a guitar over there, but I'm terrible at it. And, <laughs> but you still, you can hear which note you're supposed to end on anyway. I don't even know what that is, but there's still like, if you're going through a chord progression, there's like a certain note in that chord progression that like is right. You know, and and yeah. I don't know. And it's somehow it like, I think it's math. Like, I think it adds up to mm-hmm. balance out the, the wave sound or something. And there's something like that that goes on with the feeling of a poem, too, or the thought of a poem, where if, you know, there's a way that it ends and either you end in a sort of unbalanced way that you want to end or like in a perfectly balanced way. And there's sort of two options for an ending. But there's something mm-hmm. about that that like, you know, either it's like, like you end, you know, off key or the opposite or on key or the opposite. Or so there's something like that that goes on and you can, you can definitely hear it. And so a lot of times we have a poem where we love everything until the last line and the line just didn't do it. <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah. just the last, you know, find the last line and send it back. But, but you can definitely hear it. So I'd say pretty much the same thing. Yeah. And I think it's almost like, um, I often feel like poems, 
um, I've been criticized for this thought, but that, that poems like it's almost like they're writing themselves in my body. And there's something about when you finish the motion. Um, and, and that's what it is like with gymnastics or, or with ballet. I did ballet that, um, you know, you you don't just you don't just, you know, you finish and then you just stop. I mean, there's a there's a there's a flourish or a gesture. And, I, and I, so I guess I think that a good ending has a gesture. And I think some good endings do sort of drop you off a cliff um, and some good endings maybe tie something up. Um, but there's a, there's a definite gesture at the end of a poem if, if the ending works. And if the ending doesn't work, it, it well, I mean, it, the poem isn't, you can't, it just, it's not done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's an object. Like a poem is an actual object and, and to yeah. not have the last bolt on it all falls apart or something too no it's true it's true yeah and it, and it is there's something horrible about reading along and loving a poem and then you get to the end <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah i mean i'm sure i mean that's so in reading submissions that happens so much and i'm sure yeah. you had that reading submissions for for river sticks and other places too yeah yeah. yeah, and I'm reading for uh, for body right now um, as a guest editor, and and that is, you know, even if something lags a little in the middle, um, if the ending is good enough, um, I can live with the lag in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, but boy, if the endings, I don't know, it's it's just too dissatisfying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I want to talk more about that, about about editing um, in a little bit, but let's do another poem because we haven't. Uh, I want to make sure we get through a good number of them. Okay, so um, I was a massage therapist, as um, you mentioned in my bio, um, for four and a half years. And, um, and I've always wanted to write more poems about it, but there are two poems about being a massage therapist in this book, and this is one. And it's important to know for this poem that um, onions are a crop that um, they winter over. So, you know, most crops we plant in the spring and we harvest in the fall, but onions, um, they, they stay out all winter under the ground. I leave my window open now to hear them. Nights, I hear barn owls calling, shrill as hunger stripped bare, and think of the onion farmer from east of the mountains, his broad, exhausted body on my massage table. The owl, he told me, screamed all winter from his barn rafters. He said the sound made the cold colder when he trudged from field to barn to house. After I touched all the places I was licensed to, bunched tender shoulders that crept toward his ears, beat up hands, leathery as a dog's paw pads, each buttock's lonely hillock giving gently beneath my forearm's strokes. He sat up and asked if I'd have sex with him. He promised not to hurt me, to buy me dinner after. He said it plain, did not look away. But I was 20 and knew nothing of desolation or owls or wintering over onions or of a farmer pacing ugly acres as layer upon layer of stinging, weeping sweetness forms beneath the frozen solid ground. Yeah, that was a very touching poem, very empathetic and a topic that doesn't usually have a lot of empathy to go along with it. I leave my window open now to hear them. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and it kind of almost ties in maybe to what I wanted to ask about, about your time editing journals. I wonder, is there a difference? Cause you edited, um, you're, you're reading submissions for river sticks, I think maybe five years ago or so, if I remember right. Um, roughly yeah, maybe, maybe six or so. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. And then now body, have you noticed a change in the submissions? Is there anything different in what the kind of poems people are writing? Because it, it's interesting. I, it's hard for me to know because there's that like boiling frog thing where it's just so gradual that I can't tell what the difference is almost because I'm reading poems every day. But to have a, a five or six year gap or whatever that was, have you noticed something leaving that, that part of a job and then coming back to it? Uh, anything that's changed? Um, you know, I, I don't think so. Hmm. Um, to be honest, I think... Um, People are still making the same mistakes. Um, I, I mean, the big mistake, I'm sure you must get this a lot, is is not knowing the journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, like, like I, I recently, I, you know, for body, I, uh, someone submitted, it was like science fiction fantasy. And that's something that that magazine would never publish. Um, and at River Sticks, I, I got things that were um, just, you know, very basic rhyming poems, and um, which was not something that River Sticks would have published. They, they would have published, they published some formal work, but this was very like roses are red, violets are blue kind of a style. And so I think I still see um, a, a lack of research mm-hmm. in, um, in a lot of the submissions. Um, I don't think, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I, I can't, I don't notice the difference. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. What, what I was wondering about is it yeah. started to occur to me reading submissions just like last week that, that poets seem to be a little more safe than they used to be. Mm. Um, do, do, and, and, and that poem, you know, the poem you just read is very unsafe kind of, cause it's, it's um, empathizing with somebody who you should be disgusted with, you know, and would rightly so and imagining, you know, what is their life must be like. Um, to to ask you to do that is something that doesn't you know that that isn't you know would maybe be distasteful or something like that. And I think there's there's a lot more. It felt to me a lot more risk taking in in how a poem will be received than there is now. And I wonder if that's just my imagination or if that's something you might have noticed too. Well, you have to remember that people are sending things to me. <laughs> I guess and, that's true. Uh, yeah, and so uh, boy, there's been a lot of risk taking. Mm-hmm. Um, lot of risk taking um yeah so that but you know that i guess actually the one thing that is radically different is, um, and i i hope i'm not gonna get in trouble um I, i'm sort of gray listed anyway already so what the hell but um it, it's been fascinating to me that a lot of people are reporting um almost like a medical history uh, do you get that in the bios yeah um, mm-hmm. i do and and it's it's interesting. Um, we've really become, as a, a, a the literary world um, has really become very invested in um, in all sorts of various identities, and and I can see some value in that. But um, but I think you know, like people, I've been told about asthma this time around, um, and. And I don't know. So that that has been, that's a, that's really different. And when I was at River Sticks, a lot of people didn't even write. Um, they didn't even write a cover letter. I was really disappointed because I love letters and I love cover letters. But this time, there's almost always some kind of cover letter and a bio, and it it very very often begins with you know so and so 
and then it goes on to the string of identity markers mm-hmm. and, and that's different and um yeah that's and, the and kind of thing actually... yeah oh, go ahead yeah that's the kind of thing i'm talking about because it feels like like people don't feel like they have permission to write about anything that's not within their identity circle anymore. And so leaping out and, and having a different perspective that's not theirs seems to completely be gone almost. And so the reason for those cover letters seems like it's to say, like, I have permission to write this poem because it's about mm-hmm. me. And and that kind of is the sense that I get. And so so in the letters and in the notes, there'll be um, you know explanations for, for why I can write the poems, almost like preempting the um the thought that you don't have permission to write that's what i mean by safe it's like you know it's cautiously about about the topics that we're writing about oh you know i i guess that i guess i've interpreted it a little bit differently um i i've thought it was in part a way of um wanting to let an editor know that if they take your work they're checking a box Hmm. um, an identity box so i hadn't thought about it as they're trying to qualify themselves for the poems they're writing i actually have tried to quit reading the cover letters and the bios um because um i don't want them to influence my um what i like or don't like mm-hmm. um yeah I, I hadn't thought of them in that way yeah um but i but i do think i, I do think that people are wanting to be um they're wanting to be looked at and judged based on you know whatever however their whatever their identity is um you know whatever they they feel their identity is um but i hadn't thought about it i'm gonna i'm gonna look at that when i um when i go back to the work because I'm, I'm still not done with the reading um i hadn't thought about it that they're trying to say it's okay for them to write about mm-hmm. a particular topic um yeah and another thing i've i've had too is um more people under are pseudonyms like i'm saying this poem and it's not my real name yeah. you know and and i think there was a lot more of like, you know, just thinking about like 10 or 20 years ago, there's a lot more of like, yeah, I'll say that. Like, I don't care what you think. This is what I'm going to write about. And and now it's kind of like just stepping in very cautiously about the topics that we're choosing to to share and, and analyze and explore. Yeah, I find that really, um, honestly, almost tragic. Um, yeah, I do too. And that's why, you know, I was wondering if, you know, the carefulness is sort of losing some of the artistic daring or something. And, and that's going on. And thinking too about how, I think that's going to happen more and more as AI starts to write poems, you know? And so we're going to have a, a, a death of the death of the author thing, where the author matters so much more, even than sort of the persona that we're building as writers. But just the idea of having a personal connection with the author is going to matter so much because you can have a poem, you know, a, a AI fake a poem. And so it's going to be really so much more about the author. And so then the author's going to have to be even more cautious. And I wonder if we're slipping sort of down into something where we can't really you know, explore things that surprise us anymore. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And it's something I'm working on um, for myself because um, as I'm starting, I'm kind of starting to write again after this long, you know, health-driven hiatus. And um, and I really don't want to be cautious um, because I, I just think it's the enemy of good writing, mm-hmm. caution. I, I mean, I really, I, I sincerely believe that. And, um, and I don't think that good writing means that you don't offend anyone. I think that very often in good writing, you do offend people because you cause them to think about things that are uncomfortable for them. And so um, for myself, something that I've realized is that I have to not, well, one, I can't be on social media as much. Mm-hmm. And two, I have to understand that social media is really a make-believe world. 
and that um, I have my life, whether or not I'm gray listed or, you know, people hate me or people think I'm a jerk who've never met me or, you know, or people think that, you know, I don't have the right to write persona poems or that um, I should be, I'm not disgusted by the man who asked me to have sex with him, you know, when I was a massage therapist. Um, I have deep empathy. I mean, I, I've probably worked on about a thousand people and people's bodies are really lonely. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's channeled through a sexual urge, but it's also just a deep physical loneliness. We are not meant to live the way that we live, you know, um, as as physically distant from one another as we do. So um, it's something that I'm really working on, and I I hope that other writers will work on. Um, is not allowing the thought police to live in your head. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I don't know if it's something you have to work on because your whole, you know, our of poetry has been, you know, challenging no, I... yourself to, to push into the things that you don't want to, you might not want to confront otherwise, maybe is a way to put it. Actually, it's never, I've never challenged myself. Those are just the things I like to write about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's what I mean. Yeah, it's like yeah, the topics and, that you're yeah. drawn toward are the things that, that maybe other people would be afraid to talk about. Yeah, but I do think that, um, I think that I had a very hard time um, right around the time of the pandemic, but before it started um, with all the vitriol online. And I really did feel like I was becoming very afraid and um, and afraid of, of, you know, being canceled, afraid of this or that. Um, you know, I had, um, there were complaints against me when I appeared at a college campus and, um, and somebody tried to get a reading I was given canceled. And, um, and so, and I, I became, I, I was becoming afraid. And, and I think during this time when I've been more distant from, you know, certainly the online world and the writing world, um, it's been really good for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I've, um, I, I feel ready to, to write whatever I want to again. And, um, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> I won't tell you my rallying cry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I can, you know, obviously I can relate. I, this has been canceled several times myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and you've had it much, you're, you've had it much worse than I have, but, um, but I've been pained to watch what you've been mm-hmm. through. Um, yeah, well, it's just part of the, you know, anybody is a target who sticks their head up and does anything publicly, really. And there's a there's something that goes on in social media, which is a really ancient, um, you know, sort of drive to, to, you know, kick people out of the tribe and then and then force them to sort of beg not to be kicked out. And there's this whole psychological drowning thing that goes on that's being exploited by social media for the last, you know, 15 years or so or however long it's been going on. And um you know, but if you just ignore it, you can just ignore it and keep going, and it's fine. It's the thing people don't realize, I think. So, um, I don't know. It's yeah, a strange thing, world to live in. I found, <laughs> I found that when you're not looking at it, you realize it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it like really those, doesn't. Those, it's, it's an illusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those people that um, that are, you know, like coming after you on online, um, they're not part of, like, they're not part of my life. Um you know, I don't need them for anything. They don't know me. They've never met me. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it, it, it's an interesting time to be alive. Um, I, I strongly dislike, I, I very strongly dislike that aspect of it. And I, I, I find it so odd that it's in, in the writing community. You know, writers used to be the ones that were fighting against censorship and were fighting for risk-taking. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, so many writers are obsessed with not giving offense and um, and that's not my mission yeah so 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, it's definitely obvious reading your books, <laughs> which is what makes them so uh, so strong. So let's hear another poem before we uh, we get okay. too far down into that rabbit hole. Okay. <clears throat> Endometrial biopsy. All this time, the pain of your leaving lodged in my tissues like a landmine. Today, tripped by the doctor's needle, it imploded in concussive waves. Afterward, weeping, waiting to numb up in the humiliation of the stirrups, I remembered our trip to Planned Parenthood. Having not deflowered me, but rather opened me, petal by petal to the goodness to come, you held my hand for the exam. When I was fully splayed, the doctor asked, did you want to see? And you took one look at the place where possibility would one day enter and reality come squalling out and fainted away. She rushed to bring you back. While I lay cranked wide on the table, the flushed blank face of my cervix staring. Smelling salts brought you right around, but you never really returned. Enlisting a few weeks later, leaving me waiting 23 years to find what grief implanted in my body's hushed, brooding corridors. And that was um, uh, Endometrial Biopsy. Again, we're reading poems from Francesca Bell's newest book, um, What Small Sound. And um, before I move on to a different topic, just let me say, I, I, you should come back to social media because it has changed in the last uh, a few years. I think we've turned a corner and, and people are just tired of that stuff and you just block the uh dopamine chasing rabble rousers and, and they just dis- disappear <laughs> and so I you mean... know i've kind of inched back i'm on um instagram has always been okay for me because it's more based on images mm-hmm. um, and um and I've, i'm on facebook and i post things on there i haven't yet gotten to where i feel safe enough to scroll yeah. but i'm getting there i'm yeah. getting there well it is i think it's i think we've turned some tide i think maybe because you know the art world was like one of the first in we're sort of like the first out the other side of the tunnel and people are a little bit just tired of all that and you know the nonsense that comes along with it so maybe yeah. i like yeah. to keep thinking that anyway that the sort of performative outrage era is sort of co- slowly coming to an end and, and we're getting more real i think maybe hopefully um, but anyway, I want to talk more about, about your writing process and how, how your poems come to be, because they're such beautiful poems. How, how do you, you, you mentioned writing toward an ending very often, but how do you know what you want to write about in the first place? Is there, is there something that you sense that like, this is a topic I want to discuss? Or are you the kind of writer who journals and, and things surprise you and then you sort of take it off and become a poem? What, what is your process of like forming the poem in the first place? Um, usually it will start with, um, something that just sort of grabs my attention. Um, and I always feel like, you know, the, 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 like a dog and it's like squirrel (laughs) and, uh, and so something will grab my attention and it will, and it will be usually, you know, two things that are somehow related in a weird way. Um, and, and often I, you know, I can, obviously you can see, and I'm, I'm preoccupied with topics. Um, that I'm looking at through different, you know, lenses. Um, 
you know, because there are several poems in this book that have to do with um, with mass shootings, um, but they're, you know, I've approached them in different ways. And um, so often there will be something that just kind of grabs me and then my my mind will start to turn it over. And um, and sometimes if if it's a good enough thing, then, you know, it, it kind of will just unfold. So that's one possibility. And the other is, um, well, I've gotten a lot of I've gotten a lot of mileage out of uh, Poets Respond, mm -hmm. um, because when I read the news, um, I'm always kind of looking, you know, for um, for what might become a Poets Respond poem. So I should thank you for that. Um, and, and the news is a wonderful thing because often you can write about something that is like that obsesses you, but you can do it through someone else's story. And um, and so I, I like to do that a lot. And then, um, and and then, really, the free writing um, that can um, either with or without a prompt um, that that can be really useful. Um, I've tried to do that thing. Um, what's that? I can't remember that book. Um, the Artist's Way, uh, where you do the morning pages. Um, you know, I, I've, I'm probably like at about a 50% compliance rate over the course of any time I try to be at 100%. But if I if I write first thing in the morning, you know, before anyone's up, um, often if I'm, I'm just writing, then then a, the, a poem will kind of take shape within the body of the free write. And then it's just sort of like excavation work. Um, so so that, those are those are ways that the poems often come about. Um, and sometimes I'll have a topic that you know, I'd I'd really like to write about, and um, and but I haven't quite found a way in, and so then my mind is always just kind of in the background watching. Um, yeah, I think Stephen King refers to it as like like you see something and it somehow relates to something else in a weird way, and then he says like yowza, <laughs> and and I have that I have the yowza method of yeah, that's really interesting because I've always thought of a haiku as like the fundamental unit of poetry. And that's really what a haiku is, are these two things, you know, finding two things that relate in some way you don't quite understand and you're reaching for it, but then you make that connection. And that's how that tends to work. And so having that be the impetus for a lot of creativity is really makes a lot of sense. Um, there are, uh, let's see, I want to get through all three of the poems you have left. So let's do uh, Taking Your Place. And if anybody has any questions for Francesca, uh, please leave them in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube. I'm keeping an eye on both. But let's hear uh, the next poem. Okay. Taking your place. After they locked you in the famous hospital, I scoured your shut-up rooms on my hands and knees. Nights, I lay on your bathroom floor, tiles gleaming in the dark, your mad clutter cleared away. You'd read online it's possible to hang yourself without leaving the ground, brought a pillow for your head, a comfort measure, I tried to fit my body where I would have found yours, slender neck belted with the leather strap. When the nurses didn't watch you overnight, I called the hospital to complain. The director sighed and spoke slowly as to a dim child. You know, he said, a determined person will kill herself no matter what we do. Since they sent you home, I keep on checking. Is the laundry dry? Do we need more sugar? Are you alive? Day by day, I creep, pain scuttled, 
laid flat as by a deer who's crushed her shape permanently into grass. I've learned to wait, but though you returned, I do not think I'm coming back. Yeah, that's taking your place. A very hard poem for a very hard time from what small sound. And do you, you know, writing a poem like that um, and then sharing it, what is it that you're, you know, what you get from that? Is it your own sense of, of, of healing through that difficult time? Or is it, is it trying to help people who might be going through a similar thing? Um, what is it that, what, what is your intention when you, when you tackle a poem on a topic like that? Well, I think, um, so there, there are several poems about my daughter's, um, a, re- a very intense uh, time of my daughter's illness in this book. And the, the impetus for writing them was like, it's almost like having a splinter and wanting to get it out. Um, and the impetus for publishing them is because I think that we really don't talk enough about um, mental illness. And in particular, we don't talk about severe mental illness um, nearly enough. And so when you have um, family members that have severe mental illness, you know, it's very isolating and um, and it scares people. You know, people don't really want to hear about it, you know, like people, you know, or um, or they maybe say kind of unhelpful things. Um, and and so in a really fundamental way, I, I try to talk a lot about mental illness. And um, and I, I feel grateful. My daughter, um, kind of during this time, she came to me and, you know, I don't know if she read my mind or read my journal. Or, I'm sure she didn't read my journal, but but she, she said, you know, mom, if you want to write about my illness and publish it, you can. Mm-hmm. She told me two separate times, and it was very helpful because I was feeling really um, like I didn't want to let it out because her illness is really her story. And so I've tried to write um, the story that is my story, which is having um, be, is being a mother to someone who has a severe mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that it's it, we really we really don't we talk now about oh I'm so OCD or. Or oh, you know, I'm I'm kind of depressed, but but for most people, they won't have that much experience with the um, the more severe end of those spectrums. Yeah, I mean that's why we did that tribute to mental illness, which we interviewed you for um, back in I don't know three four years ago or something. Yeah. And and you know when I worked in a, as a counselor at a group home, it was just you know the people were they had severe issues, mostly uh, they were dealing with schizophrenia, but also mm-hmm. you know borderline personality disorder and. And um, other things like that, you know, bipolar disorder. And and they were just put away in these sort of like halfway houses where, you know, they lived in a group and they were counselors, but their families didn't participate much. And in, in the, even the neighborhood didn't know what was really the issue going on there. And it's just such a like a slip it under the rug thing. So it's so important to talk about those uh, topics. So I'm glad you're doing it. It feels like, like all the topics you are interested in are things that are taboo but shouldn't be. Maybe that's a, a good way to think about it. You know, like things that problems we have to address that we're not talking about in an honest way. But do you think that that's what you're, you're drawn to in poetry? And, and poetry is a tool for excavating that? Uh, definitely. And I think that I'm a per- that kind of person in general. And like I always tell people, like if there's going to be a Q&A, that they should be sure they want to know the answer and what I actually think before they ask me a question. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because I think I think in general I'm a person who um, I don't really like I don't really like small talk or talking around things. I really like to go to the heart of a subject. Yeah, so I, I've always I've always been like that. Not always comfortable for the people around me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but that's definitely what I'm interested in in poetry is um is talking about um, the things that that otherwise we don't talk about. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, poetry and comedy have that in common, you know? And so it's interesting. Um, I love stand-up comedy, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, there's so much in stand-up common between comics the two. Are just, they're even harder hit than poets right now with the with all of the um, the offense people take about everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. And if we can't laugh, I mean, I don't know, we're, what, what are we really? But, but let's see. We have two more poems left. I want to do both. Let's okay. do uh, the penultimate poem now. Okay. Like a friend... You are hung safely in the past now, fixed in the frame of the photograph from that day in the mountains when I was afraid, but you went right in, thrusting your body to the body of the lake, its coldness that held you even as the bottom dropped away. I'd like to remember you floating in the green world of the water, the heavens broken open like a vault above us and summer pouring through how you waved from the other side, elegant and straight, slender as an exclamation point. Last week, after life curdled inside you, like milk gone slowly, irrevocably sour, they found you suspended in the dark of the winter park. I'd like to imagine you peaceful, your fall caught by a snare you shaped yourself pausing a moment between one world and the next, feet lightly brushing the ground, your body ashore you'd already pushed off from. I'd like to think of your hair, shining white as bone in the moonlight, as the tree stood unbending in its mercy, and the end of your life rushed up like a friend to greet you. Another one of those... um ending with a flourish that sticks the landing like a friend from what small sound. Um, we haven't really talked about the hearing loss yet, which is a central aspect of the book. Um, there, there's something really interesting about, you know, a poet having hearing loss and same like Beethoven having hearing loss is an issue, you know, cause the, the, the poetry is the music of speech and the sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the, the prognosis on that? And, and how does it, relate to poetry as you move through poetry is there a way that it, it's affecting the the way you write um so that my prognosis um and it thank goodness is good um my mother lost all almost really i mean she really basically lost all of her hearing by the time she died and um and so when i started to lose my hearing when i was 24 i i was worried about that and i do a lot of my writing out loud you know, I say things over and over and read them over and over to myself. And, and much of my revision happens that way. And I was I was really scared about that at first. But I don't seem to have um, she had three different things wrong with her ears. And I just seem to have developed one. And so um, they don't expect me to become as deaf as she did. Mm-hmm. Um, so my prognosis is is good. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that my hearing loss has affected my writing that much um other than the thing that it affects weirdly is it's very easy for me to um to withdraw um because 
I have hearing aids now, but I should have probably gotten them about 10 years earlier, but I kept avoiding going to the audiologist. And and I noticed that I, I was just more and more um, staying in my own head and I could hear sound was happening, but I couldn't understand what people were saying. And so like in my house, you know, people would be talking over here and I would just be, you know, like doing my kitchen work or, or, you know, whatever I happen to be doing. And, um, and I finally got the hearing aids because I was beginning to scare myself because um, uh, I, I, I have a tendency um, to become quite depressed. And so I could feel that was where this was headed. Um, but so far, I, I don't think it's, I haven't noticed it changing the way I work. And I'm able to still, you know, hear well enough, particularly with my hearing aids, that I can still, um, I can still use um, sound to guide the writing. Mm -hmm. Um, I was really scared when it first started because my mom started losing her hearing when she was in her early twenties and, and she really was, she was, she was very impaired, you know, even by the time she was my age, I'm, I'm 56. And, um, and then by the time she died, she couldn't hear music anymore, which that really terrified me yeah. to not being able to hear music. Um, yeah, but thank, thankfully I, I don't think I'm going to face that. <laughs> yeah. Is there a, I don't know, there's some kind of, you know, central metaphor too in the book to, to you know, losing hearing um, to to poetry itself. Have you thought about that? Is that something that you're consciously thinking of as, as you guide the book? Was that was that a metaphor for something? Um, no. When I write, I just write poem by poem um, and line by line. <laughs> Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's yeah. one, I can't remember. I wish I could pull it up. There was one line in a poem that made me think about, um, I guess, I guess it's, it takes me back to Eric Campbell's book, Arguments for Stillness too, that, that mm -hmm. the, the, I don't know, the quietness, the, the return, the quietness that poetry provides is something that that's going on there as well. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could tell you that I had <laughs> planned it all out, <laughs> you know, brilliantly, <laughs> but no, but I didn't. Um, yeah. But I think that's something that is interesting when you put together a book, like I hadn't realized that I was writing um, things that would even fit together into a book. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I first approached April Osman to ask her if she thought I had a book um, before I, my first book. And and I did. I just didn't think any of my poems really had much to do with each other. And she said, "Actually, you're one of the most obsessive poets I've ever met." <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I think often we're the last to know. Yeah, it's like a subconscious churning. You know, I, I just I wish I could find back in that line. But there's some line about it, and, and it made me think about the way that. You know, it takes me back to uh, Lester Graves Lennon when I interviewed him was talking about how he doesn't want to um, add to the noise of the world. You know. Oh. And there's a sense I think of I know what you're talking yeah. about. Just a second. Yeah, and there's I a think... sense of that that poetry does like turn down the noise so you can hear the actual, you know, something individually because we're swirling in this sort of maelstrom of of thoughts and ideas, and then poetry sort of has a quietness that that brings focus. And so I was thinking about that as as a sort of overarching metaphor for the book. Yeah, you know, I think you're thinking about, um, and we could swap this one out if you want for the poem I was intending to read. Um, on page 94, mm -hmm. there's the poem Hush. And I think that might be what you're thinking about. 
Yeah, why don't we do... There's time. Let's do... They're both kind of short. Let's do that poem and the one about your mom, if you don't mind. Because I wanted to get to, to that one, too. Because that, that's a, such a great poem to end on. So, uh, but, but this is short. Let's do this one as well. Okay, I think this is what you're remembering. Mm-hmm. Hush. Evenings, sick of acuity and its cost. I pull at my hearing aids until what entered each ear slides slowly out drawing sound along with it, deafness a relief, as when I've had all I can take of pleasure and push my lover from my body. The world, it's true, is less absent the part of him that fills and empties me at once. Ecstasy and overwhelm, like life's din played by the devices in my head, insistent music I finally writhe away from. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. That's Hush uh, from What Small Sound. Yeah. And that's what made me think of that is, is poetry is doing that, you know? So, um, yeah, I'm glad you read that one. But let's do, let's close out with the, the other poem, too, which is one of my favorite poems in the book. Thank you. Um, so this one is one, I, I actually wrote this poem when I was really young, like, I don't know, maybe 20 or 21. And um, people always thought it was an elegy uh, for my mom, but it it wasn't. And then a couple of months ago, I guess almost three months ago now, she died. Making you noise for my mother. The day before you go deaf completely, I will make you noise. I will bring birds, bracelets, chimes to hang in wind. We will drive from Idaho to Washington again, and I will read to keep you awake. I will tap little poems on the backs of your arms and neck to be sure you hear me. I will play spoons on your body in restaurants, smack my lips, heave you sighs, each one deeper than the last. We will finally shout. And then, as quiet slips in, settling over, I will speak. I will keep speaking. I will sing you nonsense songs until you sleep yeah that's such a beautiful poem making you noise uh, from what small sound by francesca bell always such a pleasure to do anything with you francesca so glad you could be a guest and, and share your new book with us and uh yeah just thank you for being here yeah thank you for having me it's always a pleasure to do anything with you and rattle and just all poets should be so grateful for all that you do and and rattle for for poets and for poetry um, you're an incredibly generous editor. Oh, well, thanks so much for saying that. I appreciate it. But I just oh, it's true. <laughs> it's well, true. Yeah, I mean, I just appreciate having you know authentic people and he- getting to hear their voices and what people actually think and the strange and interesting ways that people are in their heads. It's just fascinating. And so I love uh, anytime we come across like a genuine, honest poet. I just love it. That's what I'm here for. So thanks for thanks for being <laughs> here, Francesca. Well, you're welcome. Thanks right. for having. Me. Yep. Thanks so much. Have a good night. Okay, thanks. You too. That was Francesca Bell. Her newest book is What Small Sound. You can find uh, Francesca's work at uh, francescabellpoet.com. It's spelled uh, like you see. Let me put it on the screen. It's spelled like you see it on the screen here. Francesca Bell, uh, France. C or S C A Bell Poet.com for uh, both of Francesca's books. Um, Oops, that's a little weird. So, a propaganda poet was supposed to be here. Let me check my email. Um, to see if he sent me a note. Um, he hasn't, so I'm not sure. So maybe he'll pop in the open lines. But either way, let's go to open lines. And now uh, the prompt for this week 
um, was to write a poem about a cultural myth you no longer believe in. So if you have any of those poems uh, about that, if you have news poems, if you have something you've written recently, if you had something you'd like to, uh, you know, written, or written recently and would just like to share, feel free to share anything you'd like. Here's how it works. Email your poem first to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. And then I'm going to put the Zoom link into the two chat windows on Facebook and YouTube. And... Um, Find them there, follow the link, but only if you'd like to share poems. If you just want to sit back and listen and enjoy the open lines, stay right where you are because it's best viewed on YouTube and uh, Facebook where you can see the poems too. But if you want to share one, come on over to the Zoom for a little bit and share a poem. We have about an hour usually to to go by. So uh, there you go on YouTube and here you go on Facebook. Ah, and Propaganda Poet is coming in too. So we'll go to a quick break. And then we will go to Propaganda Poet and the Open Lines. So uh, sit tight, and I'll be right back with uh, much more poetry. And we're back. Thanks, everybody, for waiting around. We have uh, a special guest tonight. The uh, Last week, as I mentioned, was the Wrightwood Poetry Slam, part of the Wrightwood Arts and Wine Festival. It's the sixth iteration of it. We had a wonderful time. Joaquin Zihuatanejo, the Grand Slam champion, HBO Deaf Poet, was here teaching a class and, um, and then performing, too, at the festival. We had, I think, 20 poets enter the slam. Um, some of them were students of the class that we did, uh, that Joaquin did, and uh, some of them were not and in, in bought in for 10 bucks. And one of those was Propaganda Poet, who won the uh, Poetry Slam. And here he is, Propaganda Poet. Hey, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm how good. Are you all? Yeah, How's thanks it? so much for being here. So I was fascinated by you when you, when you signed up as Propaganda Poet. Um, I was like, who is this and what is a propaganda poet all about? But then also in your first poem, you mentioned having been an, a, a teacher for Joaquin. And so, so tell me about, about a little about who you are, because we have no idea. Um, everybody who was <laughs> in the poetry slam has no idea either. So uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and, uh, and, and what you do. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like that. I move in and out and... Uh, I like to be mysterious. I don't know why I pretend to be. I'm not. But anyway, uh, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm a writer. I'm a nerd. I'm a hippie. Uh, I believe that we should all just get along and move forward and stop this silliness that is the human race. Um, uh, that Yeah, that pretty much is all of it in a nutshell. You know, it's social a- justice humanist and... And, and ahead, how, yeah, how long have you been doing Poetry Slam? Is that something? It seemed like you were a veteran that you knew uh, you knew that I, your way around the stage. Yes, well, uh, it's I've been on stage since I was like six years old. Uh, I'm a performer. I'm a musician, actor, theater kid, poet, writer. I actually got my English degree on accident. <laughs> uh, well, I changed my major like three or four times, and finally, my uh, my. Um, you know, they call that thing, he's not a tutor, he's your counselor. Finally, my counselor was like, you know, you're like a year and a half away from an English degree. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, you keep taking all these writing and lit classes. You might as well just do that. I was like, okay, cool, I guess I'll do that. Um, But I, uh, as far as how long I've been doing Slam, I think I've been doing it longer than I even realized it was Slam, because it's kind of the type of poetry I always did. I was really lucky, I'm old, so I went to school before a civics class became a GOP threat. And uh, we, I had a really amazing uh, senior social survey teacher. And so, I mean, 
we were what, 15, 16, 17 years old, and we were reading Johnny Got His Gun and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Miseducation of the Negro. And it was just like, my whole world just blew up. And all of a sudden, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do more than just write songs about chicks because, like, <laughs> there's more going on in the world than that. And, uh, and so I just, I started out in theater. I started out as a musician. So when I started doing poetry, it was just kind of already there. Um, and then I had a few teachers along the way who would tell me, you know, what do you do is in poetry. And uh, then I had that one teacher, because it's always that one, and everyone here knows exactly what I mean. I had that one teacher who was like, have you ever heard of Poetry Slam? I was like, no. He's like, oh, well, let me introduce you to some things. And then uh, after that, I just, I hit the circuit and I was really lucky and fortunate to be in the right place at the right time a whole lot of times. So, I mean, I performed with Saul Williams early on. I uh, performed with Talam Macy early on. Um, I was with the San Diego Slam team back in like 02. Uh, I was a runner up on uh, Ocean, on uh, the Orange County Slam team, on one of the LA Slam teams. Mm -hmm. And they were all coming out of uh, Pomona, Mike and Dim Lights. For those of you who have never heard of Mike and Dim Lights, it was running out of Pomona for like a good 20 years, and it's now they're in LA now. Uh, and they're an amazing open mic. Like they're on IG, they're on Facebook, check them out. Mike and Dim Lights. They are phenomenal, and it's where I cut most of my teeth mm -hmm. and where I met most of the amazing people I met. And one last question before, and we'll have you do a poem. Um, what is it that you recommend? You know, what have you learned that that's like one takeaway for performing a poem well? Like, how do you get to you know using your voice to engage with an audience? Is there some is there some secret to it that you can pass along? Uh, it really, the best advice I ever got was from uh, just all the other poets that I you know have performed with. They all pretty much to sum it up in some words, they all say something to the effect of write it like you mean it and read it like you wrote it. And it really just comes to like honor the fact that we're we have been given a gift for a reason. And people who come to embrace that and understand and respect that, then will understand that not only do we have a mission and a duty with this voice, but once you use it, you get people's attention, the way you use it. Uh, I was in a band with an ex who said, people don't just come to hear you, they come to see you too. And you have to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. So just, when, you know, whenever you live performance, just think about what you thought was the cool, you know, as far as like a teacher. I just take all the cool things from all the cool teachers I ever saw and I wrap it into one. Uh -huh. It's the same thing. <laughs> like every performance you've ever seen, just take it and wrap it into one and just go, but mean it. Like mean it. Mm -hmm. Because there are people who are listening to you who it really does mean something to them. So Yeah. Well, great advice uh, for all poets appearing as guests on the open lines here. Why don't you uh, hit us with a poem here? Uh, okay. Uh, do you specifically want one from the slam, or can I do something different for uh, you? Anything you want, whatever you want to do. Okay, I'm going to do something from my new book, Word Tornadoes, that I don't do very often. Um, let's see. Oh, you know what? I'm just going to do this. I randomly picked this one. Uh, this is one of my less slammy slam pieces, but um, this is one of my favorites. This is called Seeing Beauty in Person. 
If beauty were a person, she would exist within infernos, the fiery passions of volcanic flows scorching the skies of mercury. If beauty were a person, she would be clouded in mystery, a necessary protection from uh, a necessary protection from predators who seek to prey upon her inner Venus heat. If beauty were a person, she would soar aloft as free as falcon flights, adrift on endless wind currents, caressing the clouds of earth. If beauty were a person, she would walk statuesque, solid mountain giant across vast moonscapes and valleys rivaling those of Mars. If beauty were a person, she would loom larger than all, draped in gaseous forms that keep her veiled from the naked eye, released in only in storms that ravage Jupiter's hidden landscape. If beauty were a person, she would never have need for the rings of men. Her radiance would overcome their gravity, encircling the entirety of any Saturn. If beauty were a person, her orbits would criss and cross without any type of loss, gaining only the courage and certainty of the planetary twins Uranus and Neptune. If beauty were a person, there would be no debate. Frigid, frozen fears would be dwarfed by her ability to be seen, no matter what any others may deem what she should be. Planetary, plutonic, or not, that is her decision, not yours. If beauty were a person, she would soul shine so brightly that all other versions would orbit around her, the center of all light and energy, given freely so all things could live in harmony. If beauty were a person, she would be you, and you, and you. One continuous, spiraling celestial spirit, an entire solar system of passions, mystery, freedom, vast expanse, raging storms, radiance, and courage, deftly defying any definitions of men. Thank you for listening. Thank you for encouraging my behavior. Thank you for being there for each other. I know I'm not the only one here who is alive today because spaces like this were available to us yesterday. So thank you for making the world a better place. Lord knows the world needs it right now. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Propaganda Poet, great to have you on. It's really fun. Uh, and thanks for coming up for the slam this year. And you got to come back next year, obviously, to defend your title, too. So uh, we'll see the last it's of you. A, it was a fun, fun, fun event. And for those of you who missed it, come next year because it's awesome. You'll have a blast. Awesome. Take care. Yeah, good to see you. Yeah, that was Propaganda Poet. This year's uh, Wrightwood Poetry Slam winner. Now, uh, let's go to the open lines, as I mentioned. And uh, the prompt for this week was to um, – here, we'll put it on the screen – right, oops, not there, right uh, here, was to uh, write a poem about a cultural myth you no longer believe in. And so here was my poem. This is a train poem style where I just kind of roll with it and see what comes out, having no idea where it's going to go. And uh, this is the poem here. The truth is, I used to believe in its little silver hammer, tap-tapping against a wheel, listening for the hollow sound, tap-tapping into the roots of the tree to taste the sap, to peel back a thin skin from the soft, sweet fruit within the potassium, magnesium, the whole of the periodic table on the tip of a pipette, measured in micrograms, if only we were smaller, if only it weren't so big, but we could cleave it, shrink it down to Planck's length, and look, if only for a nanosecond, at the dark shape swirling there when you sliced open the frog 
dog, its belly was full of eggs, as if the whole of its body were a box to hold them in. Surprise, and how gently you scooped them with a dull end of the scalpel, set them aside a thousand would-be tadpoles stalled by formaldehyde so you could pull back the flesh and pin with a flag every organ, each one with a name no frog ever knew. Is it the truth you threw up in a bucket? peeling back the layers of your lunch a banana a diet coke from the soda machine put there for the pleasure of its sweetness a mass spectrometer bent beams of ionized light adding up to something some ratio the known to the unknown but every object viewed from every direction at once is always a sphere a fuzzy ball of there and not there edges blurred in clouds of probability and that's what god must see as he spins omniscient everywhere at once each thing a dark egg of potential energy caged by its thingness and we blink through the bars of the instant and call out what we see to the class that was uh my poem of the week the truth is let's see what everybody else has and definitely we have 18 people on the call now so definitely a one poem night and we'll just go in order of people popping up carla schwartz is next hey carla how you doing tonight can you hear me now (laughs) i can hey carla how you doing i am very good i'm very good uh what a great night so far and um i did a prompt poem and it's pretty short, so it'll be good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. And um, and it's based on the myth that uh, I had understood when I was a child, that if you keep digging far enough, you will end up in China. <laughs> yeah. And so this is called For the Soil All the Way to China. It's a tritina, too, I think. Uh, yeah. No, a triolet. Okay. Um No, try Tina. (laughs) Sorry. Here we go. (laughs) When I was six, I knew that to dig and dig would eventually find me in China, halfway across the world in a big, in big trouble. If when I was six, I were to dig and dig. Not speaking Chinese, how would I ask for even a fig? Deep in my heart, I must have known better. When I'd grown older and begun to dig and began to dig, not the soil, but for knowledge to eventually find me in China. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, good turn there, Carla. Did you, you ended up in China? Um. <laughs> uh, I don't have to say that. (laughs) 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 Don't ever assume that what anybody writes is true, right? I just like good stories, though. (laughs) Anyway, thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Good night. Yep, you too. That was uh, Carla Schwartz with For the Soil All the Way to China. Uh, Next up is Katie Dozier. Hey, Tim. The show is so amazing tonight. Okay. It's one of my all-time favorites, I oh, think. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah, Francesca's just great, and, and Wendy's great, and Propaganda Poet, who you know, is uh, really great, too. So uh, Katie was keeping the score at the Wrightwood Poetry Slam, uh, trying to, anyway. Yeah, that was generous. Saying <laughs> yeah, and we had a thing where score. if Katie got the number wrong, we would give a free copy of Rattle to anybody who shouted it out first. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we gave a few copies of Rattle Away that night, but uh, more poetry to more people, <laughs> I always like to say. So anyway. <laughs> it, it was also a wine festival, I fear, Bear is mentioning. <laughs> that, that is true. It was the Raywood Ice Wine Festival. It was, yeah. <laughs> so uh, what do you have uh, that you'd like to share? All right. Well, t- okay. So I missed the cultural part of the myth, 
that's just a myth. So sorry about that. Well, all, everything know, is culture, right? So I don't know if you, I don't know if that, I was wondering if that word was redundant, actually, as I was typing Maybe, it yeah. Yeah. Should I edit it out then? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So what I have is a sonnet, an American sonnet. So some don't call it a sonnet, but I adamantly do call it one. So. Okay, let's hear it. All right. Let me hold the door for you. With both of my hands pressed on the glass, your own hands too tied to clasp, the threat of a door clapping closed right on your only nose. I used to think time was a hinge, that doors open and shut on the heels of each second, as if I could simply grab a rag and windex my way through the years. But even cracked glass can confuse a cardinal, and I can't stop opening all of these windows. Sometimes I forget to first pull up the blinds and the metal sails shuffle around like timelines smacking the frame. I fly through and out and back in, and just like the wind, time curls from the cues with no end. Yeah, great poem, great extended metaphor there. Let me hold a door for you by Katie Dozier. Of course, I do the poetry space with Katie Dozier every uh, Thursday afternoon as well on Twitter, which we're talking about with Francesca coming back to Twitter and other social media. It's not so bad, so come on back. <laughs> but, uh, but what are we talking about? The top? Oh, it's the beats. We're going to be talking about the beats, which is not something that I know a whole lot about. I mean, I know some beat poems, uh, but but you know, I like Kerouac's haiku. Uh, I like Howl, but uh, I don't know a lot about the beats. So maybe I'll learn something along the way. That's a Thursday at 3 p.m. Yeah. And in the meantime, we'll work on our pitch beyond It's Not So Bad. <laughs> yeah, we should we should work on that, too. Well, we thanks, Katie. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to that. Always a pleasure thanks. seeing you. Yep. Thanks so much. Bye. Okay, bye. That's Katie Dozier with uh, Let Me Hold the Door for You. Next up, we have Zachary Honeycutt. Hello. Hey, Tim. Hey, Zachary. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. It's been a fun night of poetry. Yeah, loving it. (laughs) So I really, really, really was looking forward to doing this poem that I wrote when I was 13 about trolls because I used to believe in trolls. Oh, that's great. uh, It's a traditional Zachary Honeycutt poem, but I cannot find the darn thing. Uh I know that I have it. So I'm going to read, I brought some sci-fi poems. Uh, they're both short, but if you want me to, I'll read one. Yeah, I think we got to stick to one because we have so many people on yeah. our call. Okay. So which one do you so want to I'm going to read, I'm going to read Thunderbird. I've read this one before. This was one that I got published in Warp 10, but I really like the mythos of the Southwest. And I feel like this poem kind of encapsulates that. And that was the vibe I was going for. Um, so I'm going to read Thunderbird. All right. Sounds good. Let's hear it. Sonnet 17, Thunderbird. Deep in the desert, superstition thrives, inscribed on totem poles in arid lands, and on men's lips who in their daily lives notice structures built not by human hands. Lizards with no eyes lie dead in their strives to taste false black water or hear the chants. Hard truths passed down behind cheap motel dives, swallowed by Navajo, lizards by ants. Something in the atmosphere of dark drives them to bring to life, before the fire's death, the object of derision. Among Clives, south of Moab, the subject of their breath. What left then took the metal obelisk, the Thunderbird? Maybe a flying disc. 
Yeah, great closing couplet there. I always love a good uh, formal <laughs> science fiction poem, which uh, so few people send to me except for you. Thanks, Zachary. Always a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Always a pleasure, Tim. See you guys next week. Yep, take care. Uh, Zachary Bye-bye. Honeycutt with uh, Sonnet 17, Thunderbird. Let's uh, Mike Bales is next. Great night. I still have to say that Francesca Bell's one of my favorites. I've gone back to Rattlecast 15 a few times with her. Yeah, yeah, she's um, just great. The way just... she describes human condition and describes really some really disturbing things in beautiful language. It's great. It's unbeatable. Yeah, it's a really um, good way to put it. Yeah. I sent it to you last week in the Northland, but let's put it this way. There are things I wanted. These are things that my dad told me that I wanted to believe. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it's in Minnesota. In in the Northland, my father said the lakes are so blue as he took me to a landmark north of St. Cloud. My father said, talk to Paul Bunyan, and he'll say something back. The silent figure who stood 26 feet tall and held an axe. My father said with a single swing, the giant could fell every tree in a forest. And I was enticed by magic found as pastures gave way to trees and lakes. Babe and Ox, color blue, stood shoulder to shoulder with Paul and looked at me. My father said each footstep of Babe created a lake, and Minnesota boasted 10,000. My father said when he took me to Ely that all roads ended there, and I looked across boundless waters as if the world I knew ended there, too. My father said on the other side was Canada, My father took me to Lake Itasca, where the Mississippi started as a stream. And as it flowed to the Gulf, it learned to run true. Uh, Very cool. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. And, you know, it's funny. I uh, was walking the dog with my son, who's eight, and I asked him what myths he uh, doesn't believe in anymore, thinking maybe, like, he'd say Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. But he said Paul Bunyan. (laughs) Um, It's uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. He really really believed in... uh, you know the babe, the the blue ox, and all that stuff. I think uh, <laughs> something well, stuck. I, w- I wanted to believe it, and the incident that happened was, I figured I was safe with my parents. I was standing near a fence of the buffalo, and the buffalo charged a fence, but didn't get me. Uh-huh. That's my little moment when I jumped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Mike. Always a pleasure. Okay, thanks. Yep, have a good night. As I'm Mike Bales with uh, in the Northland, uh, Joe Cottonwood's up next. Okay, I believe I'm on now. You are. Hey, Joe, how you doing tonight? Uh, hi. Um, I I wrote to the prompt. Um, I only saw the prompt this morning, so this is a, a rather raw, fresh yeah, poem. Hot off the press. Love it. Um, and I I don't know whether you're going to be showing what I sent you, but I've I've changed the ending since I sent it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll put this on screen, but we can we can hear the different ending. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I, when you, as soon as you said cultural myths, I, I think of celebrities, particularly dead celebrities as cultural myths. Mm-hmm. So that's where I went in my mind right away. And I guess everyone knows Elvis Presley, but the other celebrity in here is Walter Johnson, who was a, if you know, baseball, that was, um, he was one of the greatest pitchers of all time. Yeah, the most wins of all time, I think. Right. Yep. And as it happened, my house where I grew up was built on a farm that once was owned by Walter Johnson. Oh, wow. That's cool. <laughs> my, 
little touch of fame, I guess. Um, anyway, it's part of this poem. So this poem is called Walter Johnson Fires a Fastball, Elvis Presley Crowds the Plate. You learn at a tender age how to glaze windows when you practice pitching tennis balls against the brick wall of your house. In your backyard, you learn and love how to throw sidearm and overhand, curveball and fast, knuckle and change up. You learn to hate the mulberries that squish over the pitching mound and you stomp the bamboo sprouts like little horns that pop up under your feet. You play with next door Myrna and you love the Elvis songs blaring from your tinny transistor radio as much as you hate the menacing hillbilly accent of Myrna's drunk father who yodels, love me tender, love me true, ah-ooh, then screams at you for retrieving a ball on his weedy lawn, and you grow. You find that you can improve your arm only as far as your body will allow. That one fat pitch can erase 10 good ones. That there's always some batter with a better eye, some coach with a mean streak. You learn that mulberries make great pie, that songbirds roost in bamboo as if it were native to East Coast Maryland. You learn that your house was built on farmland formerly owned by Walter Johnson, one of the greatest pitchers of all time, and your mulberries fed his chickens. You develop hair down there and see Myrna burst into tears when you ask to see hers. You see Myrna launch a stone like a high tight fastball whizzing past your chin into the radio playing Love Me Tender, smashing it to daggers of plastic. You learn Myrna hates Elvis and she hates her dad for his pelvis and she loves God instead. And you think maybe you love Myrna like Elvis loves his mama in a tender, non-sexual way. You learn Walter Johnson, after baseball, became an incompetent small-time politician. And Elvis, in Vegas, turned hollow as bamboo. You learn the easy passage from genius to fool. Every star fades with the dawn. Yeah. Remember the star. Uh, that's the change in the ending. That's the I had that the <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Thanks, dude. That was a wonderful poem. Really took me back to to playing baseball at that age as well. And uh, wish I'd grown up in a farm like that. But very cool. Definitely, uh, it, it took us back. Thank you. Yeah, that was a uh, Joe Cottonwood with Walter Johnson fires a fastball. Elvis Presley crowds the plate. Uh, thanks, Joe, for that. Uh, next up is Sharon Ferrante. Hi, Tim. Hey, Sharon. How are you tonight? Okay, hi everybody. I love the interview with Francesca. Yeah, she's just great. Fabulous. And you know my heart was beating with Wendy. Okay. <laughs> of course, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like so excited. I'm like, ah! <laughs> what a great show. Thank you so much. I did 
I did the prom poem, but it's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. I just I just mixed up a few myths, you know, in Tonka. Well, it sounds fun to me. Yeah, it was fun. Thank <laughs> you so much. So let's share. Yeah, it was okay. fun. I meet a shapeshifter. I detest. She's wearing my long lost dress. Under the moon, a werewolf. His changes all lead to a bloody mess. Walking the edge of a lake, the lady pulling seaweed from her chest. From every forest, I want nothing more but to blend in, gallop a bit on a centaur. Uh, very cool. I love that. It was a great Tonka by uh, Sharon Friday. Thanks so much, Sharon. It was so much fun. Thank you. And what a wonderful show. I, I, I'm so loving it. Thank uh, you so much. That's great. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah, that was great. And I always love good Tonka. And it reminds me of um, we had a, a fractured fairy tale haiku sequence in one issue of Rattle. If I'm going to go find it. Um, but that was great. And next up, let's go to Michael Goldman. Oh, I can write some more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should share. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, hey, Michael, how are you doing today? Tim. Yeah, it's great yeah. to see you back. Of course, Michael was the guest a couple weeks ago, and I've always sort of hoped guests would pop in back for the open lines from time to time. Only a few have, uh, so I really appreciate that you're here again. Well, thanks a lot. Um, and I really enjoyed talking to you last time. The prompt for this poem was being interviewed by you. Ah, okay. Let me... Uh, oh, I have it right here. Okay. Rattlecast podcast of Rattle, Rattle Magazine for my father. I was watching a video about the left and right brain, and the presenter was talking about poetry, how it's able to say the unsayable, tap into an emotional or spiritual state that everyday language can't, kind of like the way music can, too, communicate directly bypass the intellect. And I thought of my son who writes poetry and just then the phone rang and it was him, my son, the poet. And I told him what had happened and I didn't know he had been thinking of calling me several times today to remind me he was being interviewed on a video podcast this evening. And he said, this is poetry, all this coincidences that make us scratch our heads and wonder what life is doing with us. And he brought up irony, how poetry is a way of exploring the inexplicable, the horrible, and the magnificent without blaming or congratulating ourselves too much. We can use poetry to be more authentic, he said, as the page reflects back just how deep we are invested in this life that no simple strategy works for long we have to both take part and surrender let it unfold without getting in the way i'm going to watch my son tonight see what else he has to say about poetry oh that was great my i i'm not i've already been scolded for for asking if it was true but that is so cool for uh 
to, to share that story and uh, and your father's voice. That's really neat. And another thing, I mean, the coincidences are intense. And I, I almost mentioned it, but forgot to, where Katie Dozier wrote about a bird flying into the window. And she told me that minutes later, a bird flew into her window. So, um, mm. you know, it is spooky and weird the way poetry works. It really is. And, and that, that line about how the universe is is playing with us is uh, is, is, is a little too true, I think. it's uh, It's happened to me many times. So um, thanks for sharing that. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great, great show. Yeah, well, come on, Open Lines, anytime. Hope to see you again soon. There's uh, Michael Goldman, Michael Favala Goldman, I should say, with a Rattlecast podcast of Rattle Magazine in the voice of his father. Um, Next up, we have Kevin Kane. I'm not sure if Kevin's been on before. Kevin hasn't ever been on before. I've never seen him before. Well, excellent. um, I'm so glad he could join us. Where are you calling from? uh, New York City. I'm in the Bronx. Uh-huh. But I've been uh, I've subscribed to Rattle for three or four years now, and so much of it I've I've enjoyed oh, so much. Well, thanks so much for saying really? that. It's great to have you on uh, to share Good some stuff. poems. Well, I um saw the prompt this morning and uh, and pulled out a poem that I had written a while ago, mm-hmm. and it's um and it's about the church that I grew up in, and and I hate to refer to it as a myth. Because my mother is yet among the living, but I kind of do. And I, so I, I have a, a poem called An Occasional Mass. Yeah, all right. Well, I have it here. Let's hear it. Not a word do I hear there that I believe is true. No, not a word. And yet I don't forget or want to lose what little faith I do have left, however loosely set in stone. In the beginning, there was the word. Or so they say, and I can't help but wonder then what that word might have been and what it might mean to those of us standing and sitting and kneeling and then standing again. They tell us just that the word was there and that it was good and the first one of its race. Well, why not good? What else could it have been but good just for having been there in the first place? After all, a pig that can sing needn't sing awfully well to make a sound worth hearing. It's that the pig can sing at all that we celebrate. Though let me add right here one thing, I never have heard of a pig that could sing, which brings to mind what they also have been heard to say, which is this, blessed is he who believes in what he hasn't heard and can't see. To which I just said this morning at mass, amen, and as it is now and ever shall be, But what I can't ever really seem to fathom is how these nuggets of uncommon wisdom apply to me, still attending an occasional mass and still finding some solace there, faith of our fathers, or I don't know, and I don't care. I don't know, and I don't care. Yeah, great poem, great honesty there, and uh, beautiful sounds too. An occasional mask. Kevin Kane, thanks so much for uh, for joining. Thanks us. for having me. Yeah. I, I'm having a really good time. Tonight. Yeah, hope Thank to you. see you again. Yeah, it's every Monday night, so pop back on Thank anytime you. you can. Good. Thanks. That was Kevin Kane once again with an occasional mass. Um, next, we have Mark Grinier. Uh, hi, Tim. Hey, Mark. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. This this one was not exactly written for the prompt, and I'm not sure freedom is a uh, cultural myth. But I thought it seemed appropriate, so this is the poem I read. Yeah, well, free it's will, freedom. <laughs> yeah, let's hear. Okay, and, and it's got an epigraph. Uh, Just another word for nothing left to lose from me and Bobby McGee by Chris Christopherson. 
Everything's lost, tangled up in blue like a modern warbler warbling or a radio out of tune, tuning into toady croaks, discordant noises sung out loud, not progress, not blessed unrest, not silence, but studious avoidance of aliens and tsunamis, speeding toward death, freedom's place, sunk in the swamps in which old prejudice floats, white northern depths de-iced from which time steals great chunks of truth off melting icebergs, floating south, taking what little time or place we have left for big lie politics, for sipping low-key melodies, discordant cowboy songs sung slow and sweet through long, through drooping nights by fat white voices falling from historic heights, birds winging through long windless days past sweet chariots betrayed by myths by freedom's fall to earth from failed to carry in wings, melted into blobs of wax, beeswax left behind in empty hives, by bees made free with nothing left to lose. Uh, great ending there. Talking about sticking the landing there, sneaking that in at the end. Thanks for sharing that, Mark. It was great. Thank you. Yep. That was uh, Mark Grinier once again uh, f- with Freedom. Uh, thanks, Mark. A pleasure as always. Uh, Dick Westheimer is up next. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How are you doing tonight? Good. I mean, what what to a mini interview and a long interview. And of course, you've been regaled with how much people enjoyed this, so I'll just let you assume that I did also. Yeah, I, I face safe to assume. <laughs> Thanks for saying so. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I wrote I wrote Francesca a uh, uh, little note about how, like, you know, I've never really completely lost the thread. Writing poetry felt like bereft of any poetic impulse, but last week I did. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was really. It's a strange feeling, mm-hmm. um, I can say. Um, but I and I did submit a poet's respond poem. But actually, I'm going to share with you one that I didn't submit. That was a poet's respond poem. It's the one I sent in um, uh, in the prompt piece because it's short and it has the line "stick the landing," which has been said so many times <laughs> yeah, that's tonight that that I thought that I would share it. Yeah. Um, and the title explains what the news story was. Okay. Uh, wherein the poet identifies with the moonlander that crashed and broke into pieces. That poem I wrote last night after our fight, where you tried so hard to find a way out, and I failed to stick the landing. Oh, yeah, great little metaphor there. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, definitely, so you wrote that this week? I wrote that last week. Last week. and, and, And like, Lost it in my sort mm-hmm. of like pages of failed starts <laughs> and forgot to submit it yeah. as a little. Well, that is the funny part about what Michael Goldman was talking about with he just the poems. I don't know. They generate something weird about the universe, like winking at us all the time. Because we did, yeah. we did use the phrase "stick the landing." I could, I could Google later through the uh, transcript and see how many times, but it was a lot. So very funny that you did that. Thanks for sharing it, Dick. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Talk yep. to you soon. Yep. Bye. Bye. It's a Dick Westheimer with wherein the poet identifies with the moonlander that crashed and broke into pieces. Something we can all relate to as well. Let's go next. Uh, let's, who is next? Um, oh, Gianthi is here, but I think the sound is not turned on yet again, like it was last week, Gianthi. So you got to do it again, whatever that was. Let's go to Jennifer Elise Wang. Hey, hey Tim. Hey, Jennifer. How you doing? I'm good. It's been a while, so I wasn't able to do uh, 
prompt, but I no decided I to it, What was it? You were sticking the landing that we in the surfing. What was it that they called it? Yeah, I it's saw called you say a that. claim. A claim. And I so, love that. And, yeah. and ever since like I learned about it, you see it, and it's actually hilarious because it, regardless of how well they do, the Brazilians actually practice it, uh-huh. and they'll be like, "Yeah, I did it," and that's to sell that you know they did what they wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I hadn't heard that at all. So I always love learning something new. So what do you have to share? Uh, what poem? Um, so this was a recently published piece. Um, I actually had two published in this journal, uh, Vesivia. One was um, one of a, another rattle prompt poem when we did the, the eulogy. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I'm sharing the other one. Uh, and the, the theme was cyberspace. And, you know, <laughs> it kind of fit that we wound up talking about social media being toxic because this was inspired by some nasty things said to me and then like my response so this poem is a little nasty (laughs) as a content warning and so uh this is the comments section okay once a guy a stranger on the internet uh uh-oh told me that a tampon should be shoved in my mouth all because i stood up against creepers who assume the guys have heroes Funny how cishet men suddenly overcome their irrational fear of menstruation products, open or wrapped, when it can be used as a weapon for the patriarchy. Never mind that we have to pay taxes to take care of our bodies. Only they can talk about our bodies and our periods and how those hormones make us all irrational. The same guy said I must have woken up on the wrong side of the tampon and in the same thread got grossed out when I said, I free bleed, baby. We can't mention our own blood because women and trans folks aren't real, breathing, bleeding people with emotions and needs. Thus, if I say a tampon in my mouth sounds kinky, the one who suggested it would be grossed out again because he doesn't want to hear about queer sex and female pleasure. I'm tempted to add that it's kinky, but I'm a dom, so it should go into his mouth. And I can see him seethe with rage through the wireless network. Instead, I think about how a tampon in my mouth wouldn't even stop the bleeding from all the times I've had to bite my tongue and steal my fingers from forming a fist, nails digging into my palm. And yet it makes me feel better to show some teeth when I'm told you should smile more. Oh, yeah, definitely. The comment section is a place to avoid. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that, Jennifer. It's always a pleasure hearing, hearing your work. Hey, thank you. Yep, take care. And it was Jennifer Elise Wang with um, the comment section, which definitely I can't remember the last time I stuck a toe in the comment section because it never goes well. Um, thanks for sharing that, Jennifer. Uh, next, we have uh, Kashiana Singh. Hey, Tim. Hey, Kashiana. Speaking of uh, f- former guests who've come back for the open lines, you were one of the people I was referring to, so it's good to see you back again. Yes. Uh, so what do you have um, to share with us tonight? What an evening. I have, I'm have. i one of those who've got Francesca's uh, mark bookmarked, and I keep going back to that <laughs> very often. So thank you for bringing that back again. Oh, great. Uh, I have a... I have a recent poem. I have a haiku for the prompt. If it's okay, I can do that. And then my poem, otherwise I'll just do. Yeah, I think we can. Yeah, haiku can we, we can do a haiku plus okay. an extra poem. Yeah. Okay. So the, the haiku is on the, on the prompt, the myth prompt. And here's how I read it first and then I can tell you about it. Okay. Bleeding Devi, her Shiva waits in sanctum. Bleeding Devi, her Shiva waits in sanctum. I'll post a link. It's about a very famous temple in the south of India where there were a lot of protests about women or girls in the menstruating age not allowed to enter uh, the sanctum mm-hmm. sanctorum of the temple. 
because it would have uh, depurified the deity in the temple. However, the right a few kilometers away from that temple is actually another temple where there is a whole celebration that occurs around the bleeding of a woman. Oh, wow. So hmm. That's where the story Say it one more time so it's not, we know the context. Uh, I will repeat it one more time. Bleeding Devi, her Shiva waits in sanctum. Bleeding oh. Devi, her Shiva waits in sanctum. Yeah, great haiku. Yeah, very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. And then, uh, thank you. And then you have catalog of frozen memories is the other poem I have. Yes, I, I did not realize that it had been published, but it just came out in the Stone Poetry Quarterly. Oh, cool. Catalog of frozen memories. We don't mourn the loss of broken glass. It settles into a million stars, shards even, while we watch a red moon rise above us. We don't mourn distance, absence of words. Our pauses are line breaks that help adjust to the temporality of life inside of found forms. We don't mourn the loss of our own clarity, arguments about where the bag of cherries lost itself, finding pits swirling in the washer. We don't mourn shifting demands of food from sticky, smudgy, muddy brownies. Now, a stubborn ask for boiled eggs, runny yolks. We don't mourn that our mornings change shape from watching sparrows filling bird feeders to neglected bird shit unmade beds. We don't mourn violence, neither our own nor bloody violence of lands, dogs in wars. We fall asleep, heads dangling, static of TV. We don't mourn how we are losing ease of a kiss, touch of skins, lack the spark we had, our eyes squint at any sign of joyousness. We don't mourn missing curiosity, nibbling at teaching moments like a flighty squirrel. Our ritual is limited to filling, filing doctor's receipts. We don't mourn the weather, questions, repetitive chores we argue about, linger like watering succulents, nearly bone dry. We don't mourn farewells anymore. Facts and data is a junkyard inside foggy brains. We measure days with erased tally marks. We don't mourn our own lost recognition. If either is dead, date etched on the plaque, the other will sing unafraid of lost breaths. Uh, that's great. Another poem that sticks the landing and uh, great use of the repetition there, too. Catalog of Frozen Memories. Thanks so much for sharing that, Kashiana. Thank you, Tim. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Always great to see you. Thanks. So uh, Kashiana Singh with a, a haiku and then Catalog of Frozen Memories. Nate Jacob is up next. Good evening. Ahoy, Nate. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for the pirate's greeting. <laughs> Actually, I was just thinking about how... Um, that used to be the original. Instead of like "hello," you're supposed to say "ahoy" for the the whoever the early adopter of the phone wanted that. <laughs> so that I should ahoy say "ahoy" every once in a while, but uh, it seemed appropriate. So, <laughs> so what do you got for us tonight? Hey, I've got a prompt poem written uh, in between two naps this afternoon. Oh, that's that. That means you were tired, though. So <laughs> it, it, it means 
means something. We'll it, find out. It definitely does. Okay, let's let's uh, hear it. It's uh, based on the pro- uh, it's based on the uh, myth that we only use ten percent of our brain. Ah, mm-hmm. so uh, I guess expectations are higher for some of us now. <laughs> use your brain. A brain 10% in use seemed a decent excuse to dismiss the expectation that I could somehow function at a higher level. I'm just fine. After all, I really thought I had always been taught that improvement was vain for a man with a brain running lazy such as mine. The world had made some sense. Hey, I had some intelligence and performed well enough by using some of the gray stuff between these ears of mine. But the myths were all wrong, and it didn't take long for this loafing brain to excuse itself, to feign offense, then to whine about moving the goalposts and who had made the most of the fullness of their smarts. I made use of the parts that made sense at the time. Turns out I could have used it all all along, for as much for the banal things I'd done, mostly mindless, as for the brilliant and genius things like old Albert Einstein. We all use 100% of our brains like nature meant. Perhaps we could do even better if we put our heads together, make the world a little more kind. Oh, that was great. You know, you should send that to uh, Melissa Balmain over at Light. I think she would enjoy that. Use your brain. That's perfect. I'll do that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Nate. Thank you. Yeah, that was Nate Jacob with a Use Your Brain. Uh, a couple more people left on the lines. We have um, Angela Gardner's here. Hey, Angela. Hey, Tim. How are you? I'm just great to see you. I haven't been around as much the last couple couple weeks. Good to see you. Yeah, I've been moving. Um, I I finished, uh, like, my, like, I finished uh, teaching college. So, like, <laughs> yeah. it's been a little crazy. Busy but... times. Well, the truth is, if I were uh, not, not hosting the Rattlecast, I probably would have skipped the last couple of weeks, too, between the <laughs> festival and moving myself to this new place. Uh, so, So what do you have to share for us? Well, and it's crazy, May. Like, you know, you have kids like me mm-hmm. and like everything. They put everything at these end of the weeks. Yeah, every- yeah. Every every night we had the co- the choir, we had the theater, we had the Little League thing, we had the um, the plays, you know. So, yeah, every night we had kid stuff going on, too. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, so, so we, yeah. I, I, it's so funny because... As much as I'm busy, I always make time to write a poem for Rattle every single week. So it's it's funny for poets respond, and um, I just have like two from the like the last couple weeks. Um, one is like really short. It's a haiku. Yeah, we and already that... got the haiku in, so you can do two for sure. We've established okay. that, that precedent. <laughs> it's a really short haiku. <laughs> yeah. And and I mean, the, just just a quick thing. It's um, it's just about like um. Well, I'll I'll say what it's about after maybe. Okay. Um. So whenever you're ready. Yeah, go ahead. Identifiable identifiable sounds in the crust. The noise makes us pause. Listen for its rapid pop. What direction? Run. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wrote I wrote that after um the the mass shooting at the mall mm-hmm. in Texas. So um. I was just thinking the crust is the earth that we, that we, um, one of the layers that we have. So, yeah, definitely. And then the other poem is, um, I'm always, you know, I always have on my mind about, um, the book bans that are going on and some of the things that are going on in the States where, um, the libraries are 
um, closing down and that kind of things like that going on. So um, I love Fahrenheit 451. So um, I was just kind of thinking about this and um, kind of I reread it that week and I was like, hey, you know, and so I just, you know, it, it's kind of after this, like I feel the fire has started. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, um, so I'll read it when you're ready. Yeah, go ahead. It's already up. Okay. The fire has started. There must be something in books, things we can't imagine to make a woman stay in a burning house. There must be something there. You don't stay for nothing. Montag to his wife, Mildred, in novel Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. The pages make a loud thud. When you shut it hard, it's over. I feel the story's puzzle pieces fit within my head. The sweet buzz and then sadness. I was lost for days in it. The book returned to its home. Did you find it on the shelf? Has it wandered away? Has someone nibbled the edges? I remember how it bends and folds in the corners. Is it in a metal cart under others to be burned? It's safe now. It's safe for now as long I keep as long as I keep it from being charred. Yeah, interesting from the fire started and definitely I haven't read Fahrenheit four fifty one in so long. Maybe I should read it again because I've been I've done nineteen eighty four many times, but uh I haven't read that since I was like a teenager. Thanks for sharing that, Angela. And congratulations on having the uh poem in the new issue of Rattle too. So uh, I know. Yeah, our print subscribers can uh, check that out. Should have arrived right around now or the next day or two if it hasn't yet. So uh excellent poem. Love that one. Really moving. Uh glad we could share it in print. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited. I got my copy and um but yeah, it's it's a great book and I'm just honored to be amongst all these other awesome poets in that book. So yeah. uh, thank you. Well thanks so much. It was a pleasure having you in there. Thanks, Angela. A pleasure. Have a great night. Yep, you too. Thanks. Bye. Angela Gartner with uh two poems, uh, Identifiable Sounds in the Crust and the Fire Has Started. Um let's see. Stephen Horrell is next. And we have two more people left yep two more people left and steve is next <laughs> okay uh can you hear me i can how you doing oh wait maybe it's not steve Harrell. is it steve Harrell? yes it is indeed okay uh, i can't i can't get my camera to work <laughs> anyway uh i sent you two poems uh-huh and uh i think i was a bit overcome by the presentation and i love the fact that she doesn't have an mfa because i <laughs> i always feel a, a bit left out and and a bit uh whatever uh yeah well one of the things uh, one of the things we talked about i think in the last the last time or maybe the interview i've I've done three interviews with francesca so i'm not sure which but um but she talked about how she always felt really bad about it and left out too because she doesn't have one until she actually edited a magazine because she would see you know all the in the bios in the back everyone having mfa then she realized <laughs> looking at the submissions that just all the submissions do because mfas <laughs> are a dime a dozen you know and so everybody has one um, but it really doesn't make a difference on the submission, she yeah. said, and it's true. I, it really I, doesn't. So uh, don't feel bad about that ever. I, I, I did listen to her first interview. Uh, I tracked down the early rattle one, so I was quite excited <laughs> oh, that's to, great. to hear this one. Yeah. So I sent you two poems, and I will read one. Uh, it can be the one of your choice. I, I only sent you this Oyster Chuckers one mm -hmm. because you play ball. I do. Yeah, definitely. I love okay, playing well, maybe ball. Well, maybe we'll just read the light one tonight. Okay, sure. Uh, uh, I'll read the Oyster Chuckers. Okay, that sounds good. <clears throat> okay. Uh, how much like chameleons we live. We put on baseball uniforms. We are a team. We pit our skills. 
usually our lack of, against other teams. We try to compete and have fun. We try to have fun and compete. Sometimes we don't give a shit. Just seems important to move our bodies, feel the parts work to a strange and strict rhythm, watching the parts not work. A ball spins out of an open glove, a ball thrown over the backstop, executing a perfect slide where there is no base. We all put on different threads for different jobs. Welder, teachers, loggers, falling and landing bucker, cabinet maker, real estate salesman, tree planter, farmer, siding applicator, parks board employee, singer and songwriter, the smoking marathon runner, the incredible laughing gas monster, the physiotherapist sports doctor. Our home is the fisherman's on the Oyster River. <laughs> uh, the scorekeepers chose the itty-bitty-titty club t-shirts, not our t-shirts. Ours say oyster chuckers, showing a gangly moron chucking an oyster. You have to be a bit crazy to like our t-shirts. We all like them. Oh, that's great. Thanks so much for sharing that. And it does describe our uh, Sunday softball league to a T, so that is perfect. Except I never <laughs> throw the ball over the backstop, I have to say. Uh, errors are no, rare. No. <laughs> well, per perhaps you were a pitcher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was great, though. That is uh, that is how it goes. We are the lucky strike for some reason, and uh, most of the <laughs> most of the names are definitely uh, slightly pornographic. Puns. Well, we so. uh, the the fisherman's bar mm -hmm. is on the Oyster River. Uh, anyway, meditations on the Oyster River is another story, but <laughs> uh, anyway. That's why we were called the Oyster Chuckers. Well, that's great. I love it. Thanks so much for sharing that, Steve. Okay, thanks. Yep, take care. Take care, yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yep, bye. Yeah, that was uh, Steve Harrell with uh, Oyster Chuckers. I love that. Thanks for sharing it, Steve. And then we have Lucy Chow as the last one up. I think we're going to only have uh, the Zoom. So I think anybody who we didn't get your poems to, uh, I can't read any extra today, but here's Lucy. Hey, Lucy, how you doing? Hi, Tim. Yeah, good to have you on again. So what do you have to share with us tonight? I have a prompt poem, but I have also an extra one, like, um, because I took your challenge to write in this amazing form, in the pseudo-coup. Yeah, the, the pseudo-coup, the, um, the, this Cat Layman's from uh, Friday. So good job putting one together. I'm another five by five. Apparently she does, um, you know, she'll do three by three or four by four and occasionally five by five. So it's really interesting. Um, to see this yeah why don't you uh do you have a have an idea of reading it for people who are um you know only listening this is uh it's it follows sudoku which is the um the math puzzle game where you sort of fill in a sort of grid with numbers and uh but then cat layman puts haiku in there so they end up being these interwoven haiku where they're like at least 10 but sometimes diagonal too there's so many haiku you can read off of this grid uh, that she calls Sudoku. So, uh, do you want to do that one? Yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll read uh, the su Sudoku. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's um, hear it. Mine is, mine is not um, uh, by far not as good as cats, but I think I have at least a vague glimmer of this sort of um, tessellated grid of images and scenes. So, let's see what we get. Yeah, let's hear it. Black Swan. Lifting up her sturdy, steely gray webbed feet. On Stone Island, cabbage leaves, butter yellow ducklings patter. 
Cradling a calm family flock of fur in rippling celadon. Sepia wades into rainy lake-like inkwell. Mirror flowering acacias, soundless swims becalmed when rain breaks. Black swan on Stone Island cradling a calm sepia mirror. Lifting up cabbage leaves, family wades into flowering acacias. A sturdy butter yellow flock of fur, rainy soundless swims, steely gray ducklings in rippling lake light becalmed webbed feet patter celadon inkwell when rain breaks oh that was beautiful I mean, my favorite is the uh, black swan on stone island cradling a calm sapia mirror but those are all great the way those are interwoven was it was it how long did it take that to do that lucy was it really difficult um actually it was interesting because um the first afternoon i i was taking a casual walk around a, a pond in rain and it was peaceful and and I went and I was not thinking about anything just just living in the moment and, and daydreaming and the second day I was it was the small hours three or four in the morning I was uh, awake mm-hmm. lying on my bed and then I just took out took out my laptop and started filling words into this five by five grid and I guess it was finished in less than thirty minutes. So oh, wow. perhaps I was dictating from some dream. I don't know. Well that's very cool. Thanks so much for sharing that, Lucy. And and we only have time for the one poem, gotta wrap up the show, but thanks for sharing that. That was just great. I loved seeing a few people tried it out and it was really neat to see. Okay. Yep. Thank you, Tim. Yep, take care. See you next week. Hope. And that was Lucy Chow with a Sudoku. So that's going to wrap up the show for today, and we're right at our uh, two-and-a-half-hour mark, so that's perfect. Um, let me really quickly do the Saiku for this week. And the Saiku is inspired by this story, which I honestly, I find this too good to be true. Um, so I don't know if it is. If things are, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. That's what my daddy always taught me. But uh, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, this is uh, an article from the University of Massachusetts, and uh, they always make these uh, things so huge that they're hard to capture on a screen. But um, I think everything's designed for a phone these days. But new green technology from UMass Amherst generates electricity out of thin air. Um, Renewable device could help mitigate climate change and power medical devices. So what they do is they basically take um, these um, nanoscale – let me put these on here. These little nanoscale holes, I think they're 10 or 100 nanometers wide, and they put it through a membrane. And then as as human air passes through that membrane – um, it generates electrical current in the same way that the clouds create electricity because they're such so polarized. Each, each you know molecule has a charge, and one they bounce off the top more than the other, which creates a, a differential, and then uh, and it creates a current. And they say that it'll possibly make it uh, so you can have wearable, you know, no need for for batteries in a smartphone or no need to charge a smartphone. It'll just be charged through the humidity in the air, you know, wearable electronics, things like that. 
no no need for uh, recharging a watch or anything like that. They'll always just uh, have this way of generating, and you can stack them to even make potentially big power sources out of this. Um, it sounds too good to be true to me, but <laughs> I mean, I, I've uh, been around the block a few times, seen some of these claims before. But you know, it's it's possible. It'd be fascinating if it were true, and uh, really save uh, a lot of things in the world. So um, they talked about too making uh, paint um, using this, and so um, which uh, we'll see. It'd be really cool. But the Saiku that that inspired is right here. Electricity living in the air you breathe. Electricity living in the air you breathe. That is the Saiku for the week, and that is the show for the week. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. It really has been a great one. Love it when the open lines are full like this and we have trouble cramming it into the uh, limit I put myself on before I go eat dinner. That's great. Um, Next week's uh, prompt is going to be the following. This is inspired by... um, I was really thinking about... about, um, What is the the, the poem? The, The poem that I posted... On social media by Francesca Bell. Use extended metaphor. The title of that poem is. I'm drawing a blank right now. The title of that poem was um, uh, "Where Where We Are Most Tender." That's what I was thinking of. Which uses an extended metaphor uh, for marriage as a hike. This is the uh, prompt. Write about a personal relationship using extended metaphor throughout the entire poem. That is your prompt for next week. Just a simple meal. Make an extended metaphor into a poem. Um, next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be. Uh, Sean R. Jones. So Sean, I think we nominated her poem uh, from last summer's issue for a Pushcart Prize. She's a wonderful poet. Uh, her new book is Date of Birth. Uh, that'll be Rattlecast number 197. We'll get to meet and learn more about Sean Jones. Uh, that is Monday, June 5th. That prompt, once again, is to write about a personal relationship using extended metaphor throughout the entire poem. And uh, so we'll get your poems on that or anything else you want to share on the open lines. Once again, Monday, May 5th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I'll talk to you later. Good night.